Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Welcome to episode six of The East Meets the West, the first episode of 2021. I am your host, Rigor. Joining me, of course, is my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. Did you survive the holidays, Pat? Yeah, uh, it wasn't wasn't too, too bad. Uh, we didn't do a whole lot. Stayed home for the most part. Um, you know, did a, did a little uh, version of Drive-By Christmas where we kind of stand outside and don't really see anybody, but, you know. <laughs> uh, it's a little weird, but uh, hopefully things can get back to some sense of normalcy uh, this year. Although, if the first week is any indication, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, my my Christmas was very low key as well, so it was good. My son gave me this cool um, bat signal light. It's this, it's heavy too. It's this, it's probably about four inches tall. And it, it looks like, you know, a, a spotlight, a giant spotlight, but it's tiny. But when you turn it on, it shines the bat signal on the ceiling. It's just so cool. Oh, I've seen those. Those are pretty cool. Yeah. I, I probably wouldn't have gone out and bought it for myself, but he gave it to me as a gift. And I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how that works when you, you get these things that you're like, oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy this for me. But if somebody else buys it for me, like, that's great. Like, that's right. <laughs> So, all right, today's lineup of films are as follows. We are going to discuss the Shaw Brothers film Life Gamble from 1979 and the Spaghetti Western Day of Anger from 1967. Now, for those of you who are new listeners to the show, the Shaw Brothers is a Hong Kong-based production studio that's been around since the 1920s. They've produced all kinds of movies, from drama to romance to horror, even a Spaghetti Western or two, but it was the Kung Fu movies that put them on the map worldwide, and they produced hundreds of them from the late 60s to the mid-80s, and that's what we're covering here. As we've been venturing into the Shaw Brothers' Kung Fu films, we found that the ones we've really that have really interested us so far are the films starring a group of actors known as the Venom Mob, or Five Weapons Guys. There are actually six actors in the group, and they all first acted together in The Five Deadly Venoms in 1978, which was a huge international hit. Uh, they were the main choreographers in all of their films. They're all highly skilled Chinese weapons experts, talented actors, and amazing acrobats. Their films usually dealt with director Chang Che's common themes of brotherhood, valor, and betrayal. So, Life Gamble is the fourth film 
in the list of the 19 Venom mob films. Prior to this were the fi- the films Five Deadly Venoms, Invincible Shaolin, and Crippled Avengers, which we've already covered on the show. So if you haven't had a chance, you can check them out on, I think they're on Amazon Prime as of this recording, and then go back and listen to those episodes as well. Now, due to limited limited availability of some of the movies, we jumped around a bit the last episode or two, but now we have almost all the films, and we're going to attempt to continue the rest of our analysis of the Venom Mob in theatrical order. So the basic, the basic, basic plot is this. A kung fu blacksmith takes on four famous robbers while a villainous gambling bo- boss plots to destroy them all. Now here's a little bit more of a detailed version of the plot. Life Gamble is a complicated story about a piece of jade called the Huan Jade, which was ori- originally stolen by four thieves. Since they can't decide who should get to keep it, the four agree to let a habitual gambler named Mao Kaiyan, known as the Golden Lion, preside over a game of chance that will determine who gets it. Mao has an arrogant anti-hero bodyguard named Yun Zhang, a knife-throwing expert. Various individuals want the jade from Mao Kaiyan for their own purposes, either to get rich or to return it to its owner. Particularly the con woman, Peng Shuang Shuang, and her hired help, who wants to get into the gambling game Mo Junfeng's small hotel. Along with Zhao Kang and her hired help, Zhao Tang, a.k.a. Deadly Whip or Whipper Tang, as well as the handless, off-and-on villain Yan Zifei. Now previously, Zhao Kang and Zhao Tang offered a duel to Yan Zifei to defeat his new sword technique, and if he lost, he would lose his hand. Ultimately, he loses the fight. The sword was made by the blacksmith Xu Shi Yu, who formerly made weapons for kung fu experts, with his only payment being that for every expert to teach him his kung fu style. And therefore, Shi Shu Yu himself is an expert at various forms of kung fu. However, when Yan Zifei turned on him and tried to kill him, Xu Shi fled and retired from making weapons. From here, it becomes an intricate and complex tale as characters betray other characters, often switching sides. Shushi Yu is reluctantly brought out of retirement to help retrieve the jade and restore it to its rightful owner. Mo Junfeng, also a knife-throwing expert, gets involved because he had a previous relationship with Peng Shuang Shuang. Shushi Yu agrees to make Yan Zifei a cool iron hand that can shoot darts if he agrees to change his ways. A police captain and his daughter, Zhao Hong, arrive to locate the jade, and Zhao goes undercover as a maid in Mao Kaiyan's house, capturing the attention of Yun Zhang, which gets him to think about changing his lifestyle. Through a series of backstabbing, both literal and figurative, the characters converge at the main game to see who can win the jade back. After it is decided, the story continues on as the jade is moved from one person to another, and it becomes an ultimate showdown as to who will truly retrieve the jade and restore it to its rightful owner. <sighs> so, what did you think of this movie, Pat? Um, I thought there was a lot of uh, a lot of really good fight choreography, as we've come to expect from Shaw Brothers films, and uh, I thought there was some uh, interesting intrigue. Um, it was, you know, uh, for for a while, I was kind of like, oh, like let's get to some action, like let's. 
let's move this along a little bit because there was, uh, for me, um, I wasn't overly compelled by the characters. Uh, I mean, I know it's the same actors we've seen over and over again, but it just kind of, uh, it seemed to go a little slower than some of their other films. And I will say, though, that the uh, the intermittent action that they did throw in definitely keeps your interest. But, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really care for most of the characters. Um, I thought they were kind of dull. And, like, there were some things that, you know, really didn't make sense. Like when the, uh, oh, I'm going to mess everybody's names up. So when the blacksmith yeah, fought against right. the, uh, the, uh, the dude with the iron skin there. Um, yeah. And, like, they both finished by punching each other. Like, their hands clashed. And they would just both start laughing and then just walk walk away. And it's like, wait, what? Like, what? Like, I know. Like, they were yeah, definitely... I, I will say this about the dialogue as well. It was poorly dubbed in this one. Because yes. somebody would say something. They'd be like, well, I think I will go over there. And it's like... Wow, this is like I was I think the the my main issue is I'm so used to high quality from these types of films from these Shaw Brothers films and this one it just wasn't uh up to those same standards. I agree with you. Um I I felt the movie to be like convoluted, way too complicated, too many characters. Um I, I did enjoy it, like in, in the way you said, you know, the while the characters weren't very compelling, the action was really good. But it, it did feel like that the whole first hour was set up, and then the last 40 minutes was the payoff. And the last 40 minutes was, was decent, actually. Once they got to the game, then it really held my attention. But I have to admit, it was kind of losing me there for a while. I, uh, I ended up watching it on uh, one and a half speed. <laughs> I had it on double for a while. And I was like, no, this is too much. Uh, but I put it on one and a half speed because just like, oh, like, and even that didn't help the dialogue. Like those pauses were just, it was too much. Because, you know, I know we've, you know, we've talked about this in the past where it's like some of the voices, it's like, wow, you have this huge, like ripped guy. And he's got like this high pitched, like Pee Wee Herman <laughs> slash Gilbert Gottfried voice. But in this one, the voices matched, but like the voice acting was awful. You know, it's yeah, like, it's typical too of the times because there were a lot of other kung fu movies. Uh, like that—that's one thing I did notice about the voices is it was the stereotypical. Wait, I shall now fight you, you bad guy. You know, it was like that kind of thing that's gotten into the pop culture as a stereotype, and that's exactly how this movie was. Yeah, and the other movies haven't been like this. I will also right. say that like seventy-one percent of the dialogue was the phrase. The Jade. Yeah. <laughs> what will you do with the Jade? I will take the Jade. Like, <laughs> I will bring the Jade to the house. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! Like there was that. There was one thing at the end. It's like, you will give me the Jade, and I will take the Jade, and the Jade will be mine in my possession. And it's like, oh my god! You couldn't have found like any better way to say that, right? <laughs> 
I did find, I think you and I both, both watched the same version, and um, the subtitle tracks, um, the, the, the first subtitle track, it only just put the name of the character up above them when they first appeared. So I thought that was kind of helpful for me to pay attention to who was who. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I had the regular subtitles on at one point, and the, they just didn't match at all. They just whatever they were saying in the subtitles wasn't what they were saying out of their lips, and I I couldn't take it anymore, so I shut it off. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't put on the subtitles because I like to really get immersed in the in the storytelling because I've really enjoyed most of these movies. Yeah, uh, but I think this is the first one that I was just kind of like, eh. Uh, yeah, you know, which was what we what we dealt with with the last with the return of Ringo. I was just kind of like, eh, like, right. <laughs> it's when you're accustomed to something, and then all of a sudden the quality becomes like so different, and everything is. Uh, I I kind of liken this to uh, the rise. Of, uh, no, I'm sorry, the last Jedi, where it's like, okay, I know these characters, I know how these guys act. I know these actors. I know this type of storytelling. Uh, I really enjoy it. And then you get to it, and it's just like, this is not remotely close to what I'm accustomed to. And it's jarring to the point of almost disinterest. I mean, right. I don't think there's going to be a, a, a Shaw Brothers film that I am disinterested in. Because I'm really enjoying, uh, especially, like you said, the Venom Mob. Uh, they were my number one characters for 2020, um, you know, when my wife and I did our, our live Throwdown Thursday show, like that was oh nice, yeah. That they I, I had them at the top of my list. Uh, I watched almost 400 movies last year, and these guys were at the top of my list. Um, and I was just like, ugh, I was blown away. I'm like, these are such great <laughs> actors, and I know they're different characters every time. So you know, I'm yeah. using the term character generically. But it's right, you know right, the right. same five to six actors uh, playing different characters. I just I really like their 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 acting style, the, the chemistry that they have, and this one it just I didn't feel any of that. And even some of the uh, some of the scenes were a little off. Like when uh, the blacksmith guy there is is fixing the the axle on the wagon, and the girl kind of like sneaks up behind him. Like, I thought he punched her in the face because of the sound effect that they used. <laughs> like, oh, that's funny. I'm like, what? It's like, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to punch you in the face. I right, thought you right. were a bandit. Like, now, one thing to keep in mind is uh, Masked Avengers and Kid with the Golden Arm came, they were made after this movie. And so this, like I said, this was sort of the fourth in the sequence of when they made the films. And I noticed that it was definitely a different style for Chang Che than any of the films that we've seen so far. But um, I think it is kind of safe to say that he does change his style up often. We've noticed he can do like a funnier movie and then a darker movie. Um, But this one just looked different. The characters, the costumes, um, at least everybody looked different different from each other which was good so it was it wasn't difficult to discern who was who um right you, know, you don't have everybody with the same hairstyle and the same clothes and... but yeah exactly and but what he had done was up to this point he had he'd been doing this since the 60s and he made stars out of people like jimmy wang yu t lung uh, and david chang and of course alexander fu who was in this movie i think he was um 
yes, Alexander Fusheng was was he was the the um Mao's bodyguard, the 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 kid that he took in because he was poor and he could throw the knives as well as like the hilt of his knives. Yep. Um, and he was a huge star, I guess, back then. I've no, this is the first time I've ever seen him, or at least I remember seeing him. In fact, I thought he looked a little less Asian than everybody else in the movie. I thought, you know, what he looked like he looked like you know somebody you would find in like a '60s rock band. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, take the take the makeup off Paul Stanley, and there he is. That that's exactly right. That's so funny. Uh, yeah, to um, so, kind of. So, uh, I was going to say, to, to kind of touch on your point about how it looked different, um, the camera movement in the first fight we see where, uh, what's his name, the blacksmith is, is betrayed um, by the guy with the, uh, the the sword that he made for him. Right. The, the camera movement was much different. That, not that fight, the fight with the, uh, the kid with the whip. Um, oh, right, yeah. The camera movement was much different, like, it wasn't like shaky cam, but like it moved with the action as opposed to like having stationary cameras just kind of, you know, cutting back and forth, um, which right. I thought was yeah, a I nice touch. That. I liked that. So like yeah. as the fight moves, you know, across this, you know, set that they're that they're uh, doing battle upon, they just take the camera and there was some excellent fight choreography as as always. And you could totally see the action too. Yeah, you know yeah, that's one thing Chen Chen has been good about is showing you. And you pointed this out a couple episodes ago. Was he shows you he follows the the sword down to the ground and then back up again? You know, for example. Yeah, it's great fight fight choreography, uh, fight choreography as well as yeah. cinematography, because you're yeah. getting to see all of this. And you know, I don't know a whole lot about the uh, personal life of the the director but i would imagine that if he didn't have any fight training that after working with these guys and, and filming these movies over and over again he kind of started to know what to expect or you know they told him they were like hey you know you know because this happens a lot in action films you know it's like hey yeah you know what if we did this you know follow the sword follow this like we're right. going to be doing these moves and you watch the choreography over and over again you know maybe it inspired him or it's like, oh, what if right. I did this and we had this shot? Like, that would just be so awesome. Yeah, I highly recommend if you get a chance to go and watch um, the one that I covered on the first episode, which was the Five Deadly Venoms. It's the one that started it all. Because that's even a different uh, uh, style than we've seen so far. And it's really good. It's much better than this film. This film was, I, I, would, I would dare to say that um, it was mediocre at best. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. Okay. I mean, I, I definitely want to keep watching these because I've... Uh, I don't want to say thoroughly enjoyed all of them because I really didn't like this one all that much. You know, this is right, probably my, right. my lowest rating one. But you can't beat the fight choreography. Right, or the skill. I was so upset when Chang Cheng, you know, the um, the deadly whip there died so early in the movie. Yeah, I was like, I was, "What is I this?" Was bummed. <laughs> like this, and you know, it's it again. This kind of touches back on what you were talking about with its, you know, this convoluted plot, where it's like you have this guy who's immensely skilled, and then, like, that's how he dies. Right. 
That's what you get for thinking with your whip. (laughs) I love, though, how they always give him the unique weapon. The actor, they always, he's always got something. He doesn't just have a sword. He's got to have a whip or a pole or, you know, a chain that extends out or something. I was going to touch on that because, you know, I, I was going to say that, you know, every every uh, every movie, somebody's got, you know, it's not just like, oh, here's, you know, Jerry with his sword. You know, oh, he's always got his, you know, like Rambo with his M60. Like, he's always got the same gun every time. But... You know, now right. you see these guys and they show how skilled they are because they're all using different weapons. It sort of yeah. reminds me of the scene from uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon between uh, Zi Zhang and, and Michelle Yeoh when, you know, they're they're fighting in the in the dojo and like Michelle Yeoh just keeps grabbing different weapons off the wall and oh, yeah. like has no drop in uh, skill with any of them, except when she picks up like this big, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's like a, a pole with like a really l- huge, like club at the end of it. And like, hmm, she goes yeah. to use it, but it's too heavy. And it kind of just like <laughs> the end falls to the floor. So she has to grab something else. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while since I've seen that. I'm going to have to go and watch that one again too. Yeah, it's like I've I've only seen that once, but that scene stuck out to me because of the you know variety of of uh, of weaponry, and it's like yeah, filming a a great sword fighting scene is exciting, but filming a scene with like you know the three section staff or you know a spear or you know any other like the one we saw with in this fight with the flags and the nunchucks, it's like yeah. Like you're fighting guys with flags, like, and you lost. <laughs> like, <laughs> they go through this whole thing, and it's like, it's like, oh, he's an expert at this, and you know this, and he knows how to do this and that and this. Like, so you know, whatever you do, don't like let him see you coming. And it's like he got defeated by the high school color guard. Like, right. <laughs> that was really amazing. I did not expect that. I like, although I felt. I, that scene with the flags, I felt like I had seen that before, and I'm wondering if, as a kid, I caught it on like one of the kung fu theaters late at night, because I did. I remembered that all of a sudden, but um, I, I don't know. But yeah, using the flags, I thought it was in, ingenious, and it was surprising how it, it worked, because <laughs> you could use them as whips. You know, if you rolled them up, you could just you know uh, stop the knife from flying through the air. Uh, you know, smother the guy, and it was visually. It was uh, it was a great choice because it just looked so cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the cast here a little bit, and then we can talk more about the uh, nuts and bolts there. Um, so as we mentioned before, Alexander Fusheng played young Zhang, and he made 23 films with Chang Che. Now, this guy suffered a series of injuries in 78 and 79 on the set of a movie called The Deadly Breaking Sword, a wire suspending him snapped and he fell eight feet and landed on his head. And then while working on a movie called Heroes Shed No Tears, he shattered bones in his right leg. So he he had a hard time of it, even though he was a major star. Um, He was rumored to star in Snake in The Eagle's Shadow, but Jackie Chan was eventually cast in the role. And then on July 7th, 1983, Fusheng died as a result of an automobile accident. 
And at the time, he was filming the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, in which he was to be the hero. So the film, they ended up rewriting it, and the remainder of the film was shot. And in the finished film, his character just sort of disappears, and the focus was put on uh, Gordon Liu's character, who was in that movie. So I just thought that was interesting that this guy, you know, too bad he had a, a promising career and just seemed like one bad luck thing after another for him till the till the end. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. You know, you know. Again, you mentioned Jackie Chan. Like that's a guy who suffered a series of injuries throughout his entire career. Like that guy's always getting jacked up. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and it it just goes to show that you know it it wasn't the on set stuff that that did him in. It was just you know an everyday occurrence that could happen to anybody. Yeah, so that was too bad. I did like though how he um in the movie his character he flips his daggers like a, a a gunfighter would flip their guns before putting them in the holster. I I loved that element of it. Mhm. Yeah, I I definitely got that that vibe from him. Yeah, I guess Chang Che is a huge spaghetti western fan. So he did that's why these movies seem to be so similar is cuz he always incorporated elements of spaghetti westerns in his movies. Yeah, I was going to say these these definitely seem like, you know, kung fu westerns. Like that's 100% how I've like described them to people and you know, I've viewed them myself. It's like, yeah, they're that's what they are. They're kung fu westerns. Yeah, exactly. So then we've got um Ku Choi, who is also known as Philip Kwok or Jared Padalecki's Asian cousin. He plays Shu Shi Yu. This was a hard one to pronounce because it's Q I U Z I, but that's pronounced Shushi. It took me like till halfway through the movie to figure out who they were referring to and, and how to pronounce his name. So he's basically the retired badass who has had a long, has long since given up his killing waste and retired to become a blacksmith that only makes tools. But again, once again, he's just steals the movie. I think his character is just so badass. Oh yeah, like he's so he's so stoic, and he's so it's almost like the uh, like the warrior monk type character, you know, like uh, uh, David Carradine in Kung Fu. You know, just yeah. This, you know, stoic, like, I don't want to fight. And, like, which is why, like, the whole time he's like, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. I'm not making weapons. And he's so adamant. And, like, the first time uh, the dude with the iron skin shows up, like, yeah. they get into a brawl. It's like, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to. And he's, like, using weapons. And <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, wait, I thought you. What? You dropped your uh, your, your principles, like. Fairly quickly here. <laughs> well, even then, like, he didn't want to get involved. And, and then the police officer, or or what was it, Nan, that guy Nan comes up and says, hey, I'm the owner of the Jade, and it was stolen from me, and can you get it back for me? He's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I couldn't tell they were saying Nan. I thought they were saying man with an M, and I'm like, like his name is Mr. Man? It's like, it sounds like something you, you know say to your cat when you're scolding them it's like oh you better you better knock it off there mr man (laughs) and then i realized they were saying nan i'm like all right that's that's way better i just thought it might have been like a weird translation thing yeah no that's uh it came up on the um on the subtitle thing at the top now there's a funny one that i'll get to in a little bit so we've got um wang lung wei uh also known as johnny wang he plays the gambler the golden lion mao mao kai yuan and he was in over 80 kung fu films, including The Five Deadly Venoms. And Patsy, you will remember him as Iron Robe in The Kid with the Golden Arm. Ah, uh, yes. Iron four. Robe. 
yeah. least comfortable thing to put on after a bath. Yeah. <laughs> or don't don't go in the water with it because you'll yeah. rust. Oh no, <laughs> my my amazing garment that I'm known for is rusted. <laughs> I'm known as a rusty robe. <laughs> That'd be a funny scene to see Iron Robe fighting, and then it starts to rain, and he ends up like the Tin Woodsman, where he just can't move. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> ah, curses! <laughs> oil, bring me oil. Um, so real quickly here, we've got Ku Feng, who was the Chief Constable Zhao Ji Jing, the police, also called the Police Captain. Kara Hui Ying Hung was Zhao Hong, his daughter. Uh, as we mentioned before, Chang Shang was Zhao Tang, the Deadly Whip. Shirley Yu played Peng Shuang Shuang. Lu Feng played Yan Zi Fei, the guy who loses his hand. Lo Meng was Mo Jun Feng, swordsman. Uh, they called him a swordsman. This is what I was going to bring up. I said I would mention later. He never had a sword. He only had knives. I don't understand why he's listed as swordsman. And everywhere I've looked it up, he's his character is called the swordsman. <laughs> but he didn't once use a sword. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Is knifesman a thing? I I don't think so. <laughs> knife guy. I guess swordsman sounds more, you know, intimidating than knife guy or knife man. I mean, that's the closest uh, you, you could you come. Like they're like little swords. Right. <laughs> so that was interesting, and he, of course, was golden arm in the kid with the golden arm. So he was golden arms. In the kid with the golden arm. I think he's my favorite. Yeah. That's cool, yeah. I, I like him. I, like I said before, Chang Shang is my favorite. Even though Philip Kwok steals the show all the time. <laughs> it, but it's too easy to make Philip Kwok a favorite. You know what I mean? It's Because like, he's obviously so awesome. Right. Uh, then we've got uh, Li Yin Min played Master Nan. Lin Chen Chi was Zhao Kang. And Liu Hu Ling was Zen Lui Zhang, also known as the Golden Hairpin, which I think she was the character they called Smiley. Wasn't Smiley the one that had the um, the hairpins that she was always stabbing people with? Yeah, on her ring. Yes, yeah, which somehow comes out of the ring. I didn't get that. Yeah, like that was... And I... <sighs> That was another part of the, the, the movie that I was kind of like, what is this about? Like, because the first time they show, like, the, I don't want to call it an acupuncture dummy, but, like, the pressure points. Right, When she, yes. like, stabs this guy, and it's like, oh, here's his pressure point, and, like, this is where she stabbed him. It's like, I didn't need the, I didn't need the dummy to know where she stabbed him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't get because they introduced that with no context, and they show it three right. or four times until they finally explain. Like, oh yeah, he knows all the pressure points. It's like it, that would have been nice case... to know prior to seeing that. Like, why am I seeing this? Like, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And that came up too, where, where she does use the the vital points that came out. It showed she used the Feng Chi vital point that came up on the subtitle. And then when Zhu comes in and he finds the guy, Mo, on the knocked out, he uses the Ern Mung vital point to wake him up. <laughs> See, I thought he was dead. I thought she stabbed him and killed him. It's like, oh, this is an instant death. Because she stabbed him at, like, the base of his skull, like, right where his spine reaches his skull. So I'm like, oh, he's he's dead. It's like, did she nope, stab him or just... did she poke him with her finger? Oh, she got him, she got him with, the, with the ring, I thought. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. 
And I'm like, yeah. All right. So that guy's dead. It's like, no, he is not dead. Watch. And he like touches his jaw and he wakes up. It's like, oh, I'm good right. as new again. This is awesome. I know all about the vital points too. It's like, what? What? I'm so confused. Why is he? Why is he? Yeah. Around? This movie was so confusing. And the, you know what made it even worse was everywhere I looked, the plot synopsis were all different. And if half of them weren't even what the movie was about. I even have a book about martial arts movies from the 70s. And I'm reading it going, this is absolutely nothing like the plot. What what movie did I watch? <laughs> Although I will say that uh, unlike Masked, Avenger, uh, Masked Avengers, uh, this one, the yeah. title actually fits. Yes. Life Gamble. Yeah. Which that was kind of silly, too, if we... You know, we could jump around here. When we jumped ahead to the, uh, we jump ahead to the game. It's basically the 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 um, Mao has this giant boggle thing. He shakes around one die and rolls it, and then that's it. And then the game game's over. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, like they set that up fairly well. Like they showed him cheating with it earlier, right? So at least we knew that was a thing. But it wasn't much of a game of chance. It was like, I mean, yeah, all right, it was a game of chance. But, I mean, it wasn't, you know, you roll the die once and then that's it. It's I expected a little bit more, like a roulette wheel or, you know, a card game or, or something just that takes a little bit longer to, to develop tension. And this was just, okay, shake the thing, the boggle thing, and then here comes the die. Oh, you lose. Yeah. Well, here's here's my question. You know, the whole plan falls apart because he set it up so that it would land on the tiger every time. What if somebody right. bet on the tiger? Right. <laughs> like, then it just throws his whole plan out. That's like, true. Like, they kind of, they helped him out. They're like, oh, yeah, we both bet on the exact same thing. So if we win, we'll split it. It's like, why would you do that? What, are you going to crack right. it in half? Like, what is? I'm no uh, kidding. Like, you have six Odds different Odds are better if you pick choose. different ones. I also yeah, thought exactly. I also thought it was a little excessive for them to be like, okay, what are you going to bet on? It's like, oh, I'm going to bet on this one, and they like drive a spear through the table just to like illustrate their point. It's like, wait, <laughs> did you have to like stab the thing, or could you just say, oh, you know, you know, give me thirty-seven? Like, I know, like the the velour covering of the table. It's it's expensive to repair, you know, <laughs> to replace. And what was that weapon? There was two weapons there. Okay, so you get the one that you just mentioned. They stabs. It's got a big ball. It's like a club with a big ball at the end, and then a spike on top. Yeah, I, was that a mace or what the heck was that thing? I'm guessing that was a mace. Like, I was more interested in uh, what's his name there with the guy who looked like, like a sign spinner. Like the yeah, the, I thought it was a skateboard. <laughs> it's like what. It's like, oh, is your is your like electronic store closing, or is like, are you having a sale on pens? Like, what's going on? Like, they because they spun around like those guys that hold like the big spinning things right. outside of stores. <laughs> like, what's that commercial for? Uh, I can't think of the the name. That was it. The insurance company, I think, and it like, Geico. Yeah, Geico, and the the guys going to sleep on the couch with his sign. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's that's what it reminded me of because they spun around and it's like, is that practical? Right. I mean, it must be because he stabbed a guy and killed him with it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it looked like a bladed skateboard that he could, you know, stab people, then throw it on the ground and jump on it and take off, you know? Yeah, it's like a homicidal Tony Hawk. 
Right. <laughs> so uh, they now it's funny. I don't know if you noticed in the research that um, both Wikipedia and the Hong Kong movie base said that this movie was released in seventy nine, uh, but IMDb listed as seventy eight. So when I looked, dug a little deeper. It did premiere in 78 in Taiwan, but the official Hong Kong release was in 79, if anybody out there really cares. <laughs> I just thought it was confusing when I, I went to look up the, the year, and I was like, wait a minute, that, doesn't, that wasn't what I just saw. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I saw, just thought it was... I only, only saw 70, uh, 78. Okay. Yeah. So technically... Yes, it was 78, but it was the official release was 79, which I don't think it was released here. I didn't see a U.S. release. It was Taiwan, Hong Kong, and like, I don't know, West Germany or something. But yeah, this movie was just uh, way too complicated than it needed to be. And then at at the end, they play the game, and then uh, one guy kills the other guy, so they have to play it again to see who wins, and then... then then the jade gets out and then it just keeps going on and on. Like even after Mao is killed, it just kept going on with the whole Nan thing with the army, which don't get me wrong. That was a great scene, but they could have ended it 20 minutes earlier than, than they did. Yeah. Like, I, they're like, I Oh, this guy gave us. Yeah. And again, that it, it, it emphasizes your point on it being convoluted. Oh, bring me this jade. Okay. Here you go. Here's the jade. Thank you. All right, everyone. Now, my 65 guys are going to try to kill you because you did exactly right. what I asked you to. It's like, wait, what? Why? <laughs> like, there were no other and stakes. There was nothing else going on. Right, exactly. What? He had no reason to kill What is the point him. of trying to kill this guy? Yeah. Which, by the way, if you noticed, and of course, we're going to spoil this right here and now, but um, it's, it's Shushi, Philip Kwok's character. He gets three arrows in the stomach and continues fighting for a while, and I'm watching it going, I don't think he's got any plot information. He's not going to last very long. And sure enough, he croaks. He didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny because they're like, oh, you, you know, he like does, you know, he touches all his pressure points in the stomach. They're like, oh, you stopped, you stopped yourself from bleeding, but you, uh, you know, you can't keep it forever. He's like, yeah, but I can still kill you. It's like, right. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Which, by the way, I I found in my notes the um the using of the flags is called cloth foo. And, oh. you know, in cloth foo, the, uh, the flags can ensnare its target with ease, and the flagpoles end with uh, razor-sharp blades, which that was kind of cool. I just want to know, like, the, you know, you have the four guys with the different colored flags that have huge flags, and then you got Nan with like the little yellow flags, like he's you know directing planes off a runway. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what he was doing because as he's yeah. like waving the flags around, like he's he's performing semaphore. He's like, right? <laughs> he's like, yes, attack him and do this and go over here and now. You know, it's like. Are you calling plays in from the sideline? Like, what's going on? <laughs> right. <laughs> Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. And we all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold. Robust delicious it was also a lot louder and it didn't have as much power because the uh 
there wasn't enough uh, buildup from the because when it, uh, the way it works is that the firing pin strikes the back of the shell, which drives the bullet forward. So like you know it, it sparks the gunpowder, which propels it down, and the longer it's in a barrel, the faster the projectile is going to be. So if you cut that off, it also reduces accuracy. Um. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kids Radio. One thing I liked about the movie too is that like the sets looked good as as they generally do in these movies. You, but you could tell that it had been repurposed from other films, or maybe it will have since we we watched some that took place later or were made later. I think even one of these main sets, um, well after the studio had been closed, they um, Quentin Tarantino used it for the what was that scene in Kill Bill with the snow? I think with Oren Ishii. Yes, yeah. I think he used the actual um, Shaw Brothers set for that. And it, it there was one familiar. moment in this movie. Yeah. I was say, this, this set, uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Like, the, the different set pieces that they had. Um, it definitely, it did, you didn't need huge areas. Right. most of the, um, you know, most of the action... And even, well, I say action, but most of the, everything took place with, you know, just a couple of characters talking to each other. So there was a lot of uh, intimacy in the scenes, you know, like, you know, it's taking place in the in the blacksmith shop around the anvil or it's, you know, just outside the blacksmith shop or it's in the hotel room or it's in, you know, this. So, like, I don't think that, uh, you know, like the biggest, most extravagant set was. Uh, the one that you're referring to, you know, where uh, yes, yeah, they had the, the big fight boots. that I was talking about earlier, and then yeah, yeah, you know, being outside, you know, at the end. But I mean, like, yes, it wasn't a set; they were just outside. <laughs> like, I know. At least they went outside for like to do an actual fight scene. Whereas, what was it? Uh, was it Golden Arms? Oh no, Masked Avengers, where they went outside for like a minute. Just to talk, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's because they had to do a lot more wire work for that. Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, it's just easier inside. I mean, the, they, uh, I liked I liked this this final fight. This was one of the better ones. Oh yeah, it was so good. 
The one thing too about this the sets is that I noticed I have a feeling, and I haven't looked this up, but I have a feeling that this is around the time where uh, Chang Che, the director, was still getting a bigger budget for his films. Because even though, like you said, there weren't any large, lavish rooms, there were a lot of sets. And it didn't feel quite as claustrophobic as some of his other films, in succeeding films, feel. I mean, you know, I, I like, you know, some of the better scenes, especially like when it comes to dialogue and, 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 uh, you know, expository scenes. Some of the better scenes are, you know, the the scenes where they're in these small, like, you know, like a tea house or a, a you know, a bar or, you know, these small intimate settings and they're explaining stuff that's going on and, like, you get a good feel for the characters. Um, right. Like we saw in, um, oh my god, I'm totally blanking on the name of the movie, but... Uh, the one with the the fruit vendors, with the uh... Uh, oh, Invincible Shellin. Yes, yeah, the yeah. one with the uh, like the guy kept trying to poison everybody. Right, yeah, that was. Oh uh, wait, was that Mass Avengers? No, no, it wasn't Mass Avengers. I think it was. Uh, uh, inv- might not have been Invincible yeah. Shellin. It might have been the next one. Golden Arms. I think so. Yeah, because they kept trying to poison everybody. I think it was Golden Arms. That's like right. They were, yeah, in the, yeah. they were in the 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 bar or restaurant or whatever, and uh, they all leave because the uh, like the the wall sconce with the uh, with the candle on it falls off and poison oh, that's leaks right. yeah. out. Yeah, like that was a great scene, you know, and all the stuff leading up to that point uh, in that in that set was great because they're going back and forth and you know, you got, you can tell these guys don't really trust each other. And then he just comes out and he's like, Oh yeah, everybody get out right now. Cause <laughs> that thing is going to fall off and it's a pipe full of poison. Yeah. That, that was really good. <clears throat> there was one, one funny scene in this where, uh, Shushi, he catches, um, Mo Fung throws the uh, Mo Jun Fang. I'm sorry, throws the daggers at him, and he he had just made the iron fist, so he catches the daggers and crushes them. Yeah. And then Mo says to him, "I'd like to be your friend," and he goes, "Why? Because being your foe isn't too good." <laughs> <laughs> I will say though that that uh, that dynamic at the end, it's like, oh, you can't kill me because I've only told you four four functions of the of the five that the hand has, it's like, Oh, I don't yeah. need it. And that's the thing that, you know, again, it's a little bit of a spoiler because it's, you know, how this guy dies, but it's like, he's like, Oh, I, you know, he, he goes to shoot the, the third knife. Cause he's got four knives loaded up. He's like, I still have two left and he goes to shoot it and it shoots backwards into him. He's like, yeah, well that was the, th- that was the fifth thing. You're supposed to reset the spring. Otherwise it'll shoot back at you. Right. And, <laughs> He immediately shoots the next one, like, right. and it just shoots right into him. It's like, oh, what is? What do you think he's lying? Like, <laughs> yeah, that was odd. It's like you went to him because he's a master arms dealer, not not arms dealer, but like a master weapons arms maker. Maker, and right? Yeah. He told you that the last two, if you don't reset it, will shoot into you. You just shot one into you. You have one left. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I'll show you. Oh, man. 
If only somebody had warned. Oh, right. He just told me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. They, the fight scenes were good. You know what was interesting, though? Not not interesting, but um, well, I guess it was interesting. The, the, there were a lot of chicks in this movie, and they didn't really get into the fighting. I mean, yeah, Smiley, I think it was Smiley was the, um, you know, stabbing people left and right with her thing. But there was one scene where she she fought a guy, and it just ended quickly. And she was just like Philip Kwok style, where she just didn't break a sweat. She was like, bing, bang, boom, and the guy was down. And that was it, really, for, for the women fighting in this movie, which I was a little disappointed. I, I was like, okay, good. There's female characters here. Let's see what they can do, you know? And it didn't really, um, they didn't really do much. Especially the where they, they show her at the beginning, like, being so, like, deadly and, and skilled. And yeah. The whole time you just see her, you know, like, this is really the first movie where somebody is actively trying to seduce someone and like you see that happen it's like oh i'm in room 12 come on up like yeah. i'll i'll show you <laughs> yeah that was funny and then what was it to chang shang he gets seduced too and then before anything even happens she stabbed him yeah was peng peng shuang shuang stabbed him i love that name <laughs> but she had a cool weapon too because she's got the chain with the dagger at the end and i wanted to see more of that weapon you know yeah, like, why that, uh, you know, was only featured, like, really quickly at the end to take her hostage. Right. And then, what was it, the um, the police captain there cuts the chain with his two fingers. <laughs> How did he do that? Uh, it was a weak chain. <laughs> he just goes, whoop, with two fingers, and then it's it's cut, and he saves the daughter. Oh, man. But, but, um... Uh, Shu 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 Shin, whatever his name is, Philip Quark's character, he had those giant nunchucks that he pulled from out of nowhere. Those were cool. Yeah, it's like, where did you get those? But uh, right, it's, it's still fun. <laughs> where were you hiding them nunchucks? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Well, there's plenty more where that came from. Right, <laughs> I got a whole arsenal. <laughs> Uh, they did a lot of cool wire work with characters jumping around, but I really love, as much as the wire work is entertaining, I just love when they're doing regular acrobatics because I think there was one where Philip Kwok did like a two or three flip in the one move. Flips. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. that was insane. I was just going to say that, like fighting the whip guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was that was so cool. It just shows you the skill of these guys. And the one cool weapon was the... um. What's his name? Yun Zhang had the uh, magnetic daggers. I thought that was a cool uh, plot tr trick there. Yeah, especially in their, their duel there. Yeah. So I think, um, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to mention here. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, the the character, Wu Hao, he was, I think he was one of the four thieves. Um, he's a martial arts practitioner known for storing massive amounts of chi in his body, or ki, whatever you want to call it. And he can deflect throwing knives that hit his chest without even leaving a scratch. He was It kind of reminded me of Golden Arms. And they flash to that scene from the very, very beginning where they had that crazy little intro. And the sword hits him and it just bends over him like we saw in the last movie. Where mm -hmm. It was like the sword was practically made of tinfoil. Yeah, like that's... He was annoying to me. Like, I thought he was just a really <laughs> annoying character. Like, yeah. I did not like him. 
Like it was kind of cool, and fist. he had skill, obviously. But like, oh my god, he was annoying. Do you yeah. have a rake? Right. <laughs> he killed all the dudes with a rake. Oh, but he's no match for uh, Yanzi Faye's gauntlet, which fires the the spring loaded uh, knives there. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like oh, I can throw this really hard. You know, it's like I can throw this knife at eighty miles an hour. It's like, huh, but that didn't right. matter. It's like, oh, but this is spring-loaded, and it shoots it at 80 miles an hour. Oh, no, I'm dead. Right. <laughs> it's like, how much I... How much more, like, power do you think it's coming from, like, a guy who just, this is what he does, and that's all he does is throw knives? Like, right. oh, but it's spring-loaded. It's like, does that really make that much of a difference? Right. <laughs> He can only he can only defend against slow weapons, not fast weapons. I guess I don't know. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like I have, I have you know impenetrable skin. Nothing can hurt me. But it's like that little knife killed you, as opposed to a sword. <laughs> yeah, but I shot out of a spring. So, oh well, there's yeah. no defense against that. I guess. <laughs> All right, Patsy. So, what are your final thoughts on um, the um, life gamble? Um, I guess it, it's this has been my least favorite of the Shaw Brothers films that we have uh, covered. You know, for the reasons that I said. However, I did find it enjoyable because of some of the uh, the great fight scenes, and you know, you know, we've kind of you know mocked it a little bit because there's there's some silliness but you know that happens in every Shaw Brothers movie that I've seen so far you know a guy right. you know we, we touched on this you know a couple of times you know where somebody's like stabbed 30 times but manages to run 12 miles and exposit <laughs> everything that's going on and then dies right. um, <laughs> he can't die he has important plot information and then he gives it and it's like well you're no use bam gone like well that's how i knew phil quack was gonna get it because he didn't have any plot information yeah he was he was done like he had he had given the jade up so it's like well it's only a matter of time but at least they gave him like a good death but i will say that i i enjoyed uh i enjoyed the fight scenes i enjoyed the choreography um you know normally in a film like this you're like oh who's gonna betray who and what side are they on you know generally when you you know it's it's one of those it's like the the trope of you know guy taking somebody under his wing it's like oh here's lesson number 3 never trust anyone which we'll we'll get into uh, <laughs> never trust anybody which was actually lesson 2 um right that's right and it's just like you know and and that then later on in the movie they'll betray the main character like i did tell you not to trust anyone you know like right yeah uh but it it got too over the top where it's like oh, I'm betraying you. Well, why? I plot convenience. I don't know. Like it didn't make sense right, after exactly. a while. Like there was it's like, oh I'm gonna betray you and then because I don't know, everybody else was doing it, I just wanted to be cool. Like <laughs> that's kind of what it felt if like. If everybody else was stealing a jade, would you do it? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, Johnny's Johnny betrayed his friend and stole the jade. Would you do it? Oh. 
just wanted to be popular. Like I said, you know, the, the, the scene at the end when it's like, oh, you brought me the jade, the very thing I asked you to do. Yep, here you go. Oh, thanks. All right, betray him. What? Right. Quick, get the flags. It's the only thing that can defeat him. Ah, flags, my only weakness. <laughs> Where's the guy with the impervious skin? He could fight the flags. Yeah, right. Oh, sorry. Uh, that knife was thrown slightly faster than the last knife that hit me in the chest, so now I'm dead. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I agree with your assessment. Um, I felt like, and I think I said this before, the first hour was mainly set up with some action thrown in, and then the last 40 was really exciting. Uh, like I said, it, I, I, it was definitely wasn't a bad movie by any stretch. Um, I just wasn't blown away by it. Um, I think part of my issue with this film is... I like as an audience member, I didn't have a stake in it. There was nothing truly personal in this film. Like usually like in a revenge tale, the guy's family's been killed or whatever, and he wants to seek revenge. And that's kind of cool because you can almost relate to that. But this was like they stole this item and it was all about the stolen item and other people's are trying to steal the item. And it was like, I, I don't care. I don't steal things. So I, I don't know. <laughs> so that for me was made it just a little less enjoyable. I didn't feel like I was interested enough in what was going on because I really didn't care about the Jade. Yeah, you know? and, and it's just like... To me, it just... I couldn't tell what the design was. It just kind of looked like a coiled dog turd. And I'm like... <laughs> a glow-in-the-dark dog turd. It's like, wait a minute. like, Like, what's the... Big, and they even said at the end, it's like, oh, it's worth a hundred thousand, but it's insured for even more. It's like, right? <laughs> who cares then? Like, it's not even like super, super valuable, right? And at that point, was that the um, was that the big plot twist? Was that supposed to be the big plot twist? Was oh, it's actually insured for more. So if we make it look like it was stolen, then we can ca- and keep it gone, then we can cash in on the insurance money. Right, you cash in the insurance money and then you sell it. So now instead of 500,000 tail, you get 600,000. Right. But all in all, it's definitely worth watching if anything for the for the five venoms because they're just always fun to watch and they're all they're all such good actors even if the voice acting, the English voices aren't that great. You can just tell that they're good actors. Yeah, the the voice acting wasn't the best. But. Right. I have a feeling, too, actually, now that you mention it, some of, like, the guy who did Cheyenne Chang's voice in succeeding films that we've seen already, I think he did another character's voice in this one and not Deadly Whip. So that confused me a little bit, too, because I'm starting to recognize the voices, but then it's a different character. I'm like, wait a minute, that's not his voice, you know? Yeah, it's it's weird. I need to do a little bit more diving into into who did the voice acting. I I know that there's a big interview with one guy that was a main uh, dubbing actor for some of these films, and I'd like to do it a little bit a deeper dive, and maybe we can talk about that at some point. But so let's take a break here. That was uh, Life Gamble from 1979, and we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to discuss Day of Anger from 1967. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock ops? No, not really. 
Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days or Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysoreours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Greetings, this is Mr. Lobo. Are you a Sinsomniac? Do you stay up late and watch what normal people call bad movies till dawn? Black and white low-budget pot boilers, box office bombs, West German talking car movies, rock bands versus monster movies, broken down school films, midget zombie and midget spy flicks, guys in gorilla suit movies, even old TV commercials, inappropriate cartoons, drive-in snack bar ads, and worse... Well, we like to say they're not bad movies, just misunderstood. Stay up late with Miss Mittens, your host, Mr. Lobo, and a revolving door of special guests, fellow horror movie hosts, robot monsters, and lovely real seven girls for a late-night TV slumber party that we call Cinema Insomnia. You can watch us on channel OSI 74 for Roku. We even have some episodes on Amazon and Alpha Video DVD. You may never get a good night's sleep again. Lee Van Cleef has been ugly, dirty, and downright mean. Now, watch him get violent. Let's say I'm buying your revenge for $50,000. Then the honest people of Clifton can owe their debt to Frank Talbot. (laughs) 
pretty quick with a pistol. And I don't want to question that, Talby. But who knows if you'd take on a real duel. The weapon's gonna kill me, Benedict. Okay, next up is the Spaghetti Western Day of Anger from 1967, originally titled I Giorni dell'Ira, starring Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma. Patsy, why don't you give us the synopsis? Well, the uh, IMDb synopsis says, A scruffy garbage boy becomes the pupil of a famed gunfighter, and the stage for confrontation is set when the gunman becomes unhinged and overruns the boy's town through violence and corruption. Yeah, that's not bad, but I think we can do a little better. <laughs> Scott is a young man working as a street sweeper in the town of Clifton, Arizona. Now, he's not just working as a street sweeper. We are introduced to him as he is collecting the leavings of uh, the inhabitants of each of the buildings uh, one by one. He has his big buckets, and uh, <laughs> the first thing I thought was like, man, poor Ringo has a shit job. Because that's literally what's what he's doing. Like you know, you see this, you know, old timey looks like a, you know, you know, what you would expect a an old timey bartender to look like. You know, with the mustache and the, the arm garters and the suspenders, and he comes out and he leaves a bucket on the stairs, and you know, here comes Scott, and he takes the bucket and pours it into. Oh yeah, it's very clear what what it was. Uh, Scott is looked down upon by the town people as he has never known his father and only knows his mother's first name was Mary. The only two people who show him respect and friendship are Murph Allen Short, the former gunslinger, and Blind Bill, a partially blind old beggar. Well, not entirely true. The uh, That one little uh, blonde prostitute seems to uh, have taken a shine to him. <laughs> That's true. When Frank Talby rides into town and kills Perkins, one of Scott's bullies, Scott realizes the opportunity to change his life. Now, when we first introduce them, you know, Scott is very, uh, very uh, helpful when Talby comes into town. And he's like, oh, you know, what are you looking for? What can I, you know, how can I help you? You know, even though everybody treats him like garbage, uh, you know, he's, he's willing to help this stranger. He's like, oh, I'm looking for a stable. I'm looking for a place to, you know, spend the night and. He's like, oh, yeah, if you go right down there, and if you go over here, you know, this is where you want to go. And He's like, oh, okay. Uh, he's like, you want to earn a dollar? He's like, oh, yeah, a dollar. Whew. I mean, you know, 1860s, <laughs> dollar's right. pretty good. So he, uh, 
gives it, he, he's like, yep, yeah, take my horse to the stable and meet me back at the saloon. And, but nobody wants him in the saloon, which is where he has this confrontation with one of the bullies, uh, Perkins, whose wife had just delivered twins the night before, along with a mayor who had a severe case of diarrhea. I don't know why that was vital to the plot, but uh, apparently it was. So Scott realizes that he has an opportunity to change his life and decides to prove his worth as a gunfighter. After the trial, because nobody wanted him in the... Because uh, this, this synopsis isn't 100%. But uh, after the trial, the reason he left town is because the judge and the uh, owner of the saloon uh, and the, the marshal were all part of... Uh, Scott just getting the shit kicked out of him. Like, they just punched the hell out of him in the middle of the, uh, in the uh, middle of the, the courthouse, and the judge is like, hey, do that outside where I can't see it so I can't prosecute. Right. <laughs> so Scott's like, screw this, I'm out of here. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, Telby leaves to find, Telby leaves town to go after Wild Jack, his former associate, who owes him $50,000, Again, $50,000 back then. I mean, that's a lot of money now. Right. (laughs) Uh, Scott follows him, and Talby reluctantly lets him tag along and agrees to teach him 10 essential rules about gunfighting. I don't know if we got to 10, but we did. Uh, Talby and Scott find Wild Jack, but Criminal tells the pair he doesn't have the money anymore, as he was double-crossed by a group of Clifton's most seemingly respectable citizens. Same citizens who despised and mistreated Scott. And as soon as you start hearing, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, oh, is that guy and that guy and that guy? Oh, the guys that just punched the crap out of Scott in the middle of the courthouse? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, <clears throat> gunfight ensues, and uh, Scott manages to convince Talby of his skills with a revolver. Uh, after taking care of Wild Jack's gang, the pair return to Clifton, where Scott tried, changed his name to Scott Mary. after Talby's suggestion, which is what he told him when they first met. He goes, what's your name? He's like, Scott. Scott what? He goes, well, I don't have a last name. I never never knew my dad. He's like, I only knew my mother's name was Mary. He's like, why don't you just call yourself Scott Mary? He's like, well, people will make fun of me. He's like, how so? (laughs) Like, Lee Van Cleef is such a badass. Like, uh, With Scott's help, Talby takes over the town, killing first Perkins' gang and later the inner circle who runs Clifton and conspired to kill Talby when he revealed their dirty secret. Talby becomes the de facto town manager and Scott his second-in-command. Nevertheless, Scott's old friend Murph, who taught Scott how to shoot, well, he didn't really teach him how to shoot, he taught him how to draw, uh, explains to Scott that his fast draw and accuracy has now become a threat to Talby, who is aging and wants to settle in Clifton. Soon after, Murph takes the sheriff's badge and forbids the carrying of guns. See, they didn't call him the sheriff. They called him the marshal, which I thought was odd. Right. But I'm thinking it's a translation thing. Oh, okay. Scott warns Talby not to mess with his former mentor, but Talby uh, obliquely says that he won't back down. Murph knows that he can't defeat Talby in a duel, but he still decides to face him, and he also knows that in doing so, Scott will finally realize that Talby and his ruthless ways are not Scott's true path. When Murph comes to take Talby's gun with Scott watching, Talby shoots and kills him in cold blood. Accordingly, Scott flees in anger and decides to settle things in a shootout. Scott finds that Murph left him famous gunfighter Doc Holliday's gun, adjusted for quick fire, as well as some instructions on how to defeat Talby. 
Scott defeats Talby's gang by taking advantage of the rules Talby once taught him, then kills Talby in an open duel. Triumphant but despondent, Scott discards his gun and walks away from the scene of the duel with Blind Bill. I wouldn't say he discards his gun so much as he just hucks it through like the nearest window in in right. you know <laughs> saddened rage. There's probably some little old lady sitting there eating her soup and the gun comes flying in through the window. Well, and we get to see at the beginning, you know, all the people with their, like, nightcaps and shit, like, leaning out the windows, like, oh, what's going on? Who's shooting? We don't hear right. any gunshots here in Clifton. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, I was just shooting my gun to clean it. It's like, <laughs> yeah, okay. That sounds accurate. What's the best right. way to clean this gun? I don't know, shoot some bullets through it? Wow, oh, you're a genius. <laughs> Yeah, but first put soap on the bullets. No, water just down say the that. barrel. There you go. That's the best way. That's so clown. funny. <laughs> so yeah, um, first impression, uh, Patsy, going into this. Um, going into it, I was like, I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be interesting because you know the first one we saw, uh, Death Rides a Horse, had Lee Van Cleef in it, and I'd never really seen. Lee Van Cleef in, you know, this type of role. And obviously I had seen him in, in uh, Escape from New York, which I had only just recently watched, but you don't get the full breadth of how badass Lee Van Cleef is. Um, in, right. In that movie, you have to see him in a Western because he's just, he's just so awesome. Like he was born to play a Western badass. Like he really was. Um, Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Gemma's a guy that we've seen in, you know, uh, two films already playing the same character. So this was the first time I've seen him playing somebody that wasn't Ringo. Uh, And, you know, so I'd been familiar with who he was and how... uh, you know how cool he could be. Um, so I was I was looking forward to this when I when I saw it. Like I didn't watch any trailers. Like that's generally when with these films I I won't watch the trailer and I won't look up any information. I'll just turn it on. And this was actually streaming on Tubi. Uh, oh free, okay. Oh good. The free service, uh, which is good because I really I, w- I, w- I much prefer watching them if I have the opportunity to watch them sitting in my recliner as opposed to sitting in front of my computer, uh, there's a the right. app that I can, I can watch. Um, what I do is I have a hard drive. So if I have a digital version of a movie, I just put it on the hard drive and watch it on my living room TV. Yeah. See, that's, that's a much better plan, but I, my TV isn't a smart TV, so I can't uh, project it on there. Although I don't know if I could do it oh, on a okay. fire stick. I might be able to. I don't know. That's an experiment for another day. But right. uh, <laughs> I was looking forward to this one because I was, you know, like like we talked about in the last episode, which was you know, a couple of weeks ago at this point, um, not, you know, a huge fan of Return of Ringo because it, if, like we said, if it had been called something else because all the same actors returned from the first film, but they were all playing different characters. And it almost right. seemed that, you know, <laughs> like the only consistent thing was, uh, was Giuliano Gemma as 
as Ringo. But even he was a totally different character. So it's like they should have just called it something else. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you're capitalizing on the name, but like it has nothing to do with it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I was looking for him to, you know, I, I guess, redeem himself as a, as a poor term because it's not really his fault of what happened. But what I was That's looking true. forward yeah. to was, okay, we're going to see, I'm going to see this and I'm going to see a new, uh, a different version where he's not playing the same character that I'm familiar with. So I can, you know, it's like a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I walked into this, you know, looking forward to, since we saw day, um, uh, Death Rides a Horse with Lee Van Cleef and how cool he was there. And then, it, it, like you said, you know, at least the first Ringo, uh, Juliana Gemma was so cool. So was seeing, or looking forward to the team up for me was exciting because I just, I loved both actors now. And of course I grew up with Lee Van Cleef, but I didn't really didn't know Juliano Gemma till we watched uh, Pistol for Ringo. And I was just kind of looking forward to seeing sort of these two titans of, of spaghetti westerns, um, you know, star together in a movie. Uh, I watched it uh, Wednesday, I think the first time. And I have to say, you know, I walked in and I, 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 I guess I had a certain expectation for the movie and at the end, I wasn't really happy with it. And even though this thing is beautifully shot, every scene, every frame is like well composed. The camera work was amazing. Um, the characters were all good. There was one thing that I just that was nagging at me that I didn't really like. And well, I'll explain, get into that a little bit later. But then I watched it again this morning, and after having done some research, and then I I watched it again with fresh eyes. I liked it a lot better than the first time I saw it, which, like I said, was two days ago. So I, I actually really enjoyed this. I really got a lot more out of it the second time around. I think it was because the first time I had certain expectations of what the characters were going to do, and they didn't do what I thought they were going to do. So I had to kind of get over that, <laughs> get over myself, and and just you know let it go and watch the movie again, and that, that really worked. Yeah, I found that uh, you know going in with little to no expectation only knowing that I liked the two lead actors um, really helped because I did enjoy this quite a bit. Um, you know, and I, and I, as I'm, I'm watching this, I'm like, you know, I'm taking notes and, you know, there's some interesting uh, characteristics about Scott that really take on a, a whole new dimension as, as the movie progresses. Yes. One thing I didn't understand is when the guy yells at him and calls him ugly. It's like right. he's a leading man in a western. Right. Ugly's generally not the term. But again, it might have been a different uh you know, maybe something that got lost in translation. Maybe instead of ugly they called him like disgusting or something like that, you know, and it just right translated, but it's like eh like he's, he's kind of a handsome dude. Is. Like, come on. Like, yeah, come on. You know, like <laughs> he's like this poor dude, and like you know, you have this, this, uh, you know, smoking hot uh, uh, prostitute, like giving him the 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 come hither look. It's like he doesn't <laughs> have any money, like, but you're still like, 
How you doing there, buddy? Yeah. <laughs> you come back. After I just couldn't wait for him to in front of the saloon and. Uh, right. Uh, I just couldn't wait for him to get rid of that coat. It was just so nasty from slumming that, you know, chumming that shit all over the place. Slum- yeah. Lugging it, I guess, is the word I was looking for. But. Yeah, because he has like a cart with two huge barrels, and he just walks up and down the, you know, call it a town. It's really a street with, yeah. you know, a dozen buildings. And they just go back and forth, and he just collects all the shit water and pours it in his bucket. <laughs> so gross. And then he just, like, dumps it in a hole in the in the stables. It's like, right. where does that hole go? Nowhere. No kidding. <laughs> what do you do when it fills up? I don't know. Dig another hole? <laughs> well, that's what they used to do with outhouses. Like, they, you, know, they, you know, you have your outhouse. And I learned this from reading... Uh, Joe R. Lansdale's book, The Bottoms. You have your outhouse, and you, you know you, you dig your hole, and you move your outhouse over the hole. And then when the hole gets filled, you, know, you pack dirt on top of it and just move the outhouse somewhere else. Oh, gross. <laughs> Probably a good idea to remember where you're moving it from, though. Probably want to mark right. it somehow. So you go to dig, it's like, ah, man, we already used this place. <laughs> Um, I did like when he, he got back to his, uh, he went back to the stable to dump everything out and he like climbs up to get his quote unquote gun and gun belt. It's like, it's like a piece of twine and I'm like, Oh, that's a, I wrote down, that's a nice belt. It matches your fancy gun. Like, is that made of wood (laughs) or chocolate? Like, right. He's like, oh, watch me draw my gun. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's like, I need to practice for 12 seconds a day. <laughs> no wonder we you're did so get a little bit of this. <laughs> you did it like six times. We did get a little bit of that Giuliano Gemma um, athleticism, the way he you know, pulls himself up onto the loft there. Oh, and then and the then flip down. down. Yeah. I thought that was cool. I bet that was totally improv. They were like, "All right, yeah, you know, we don't have much of a, you know, a medical budget on this, so don't go doing anything stupid." All right, watch <laughs> me do the backflip off a hayloft. <laughs> well, even like it was like a front flip to get up there. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, like he did that cool, cool uh, leap up motion, and then like the the flip down, which I liked. So, if yeah, it was me, I would have just. I would have landed on my head. <laughs> I would have tried to do the flip up and then just went straight down. Gravity would have just grabbed me. In. <laughs> I would have had a ladder. I would have been like, screw this jumping and flipping shit. <laughs> I'm too old for this. That's funny. But I did get a little confused when he starts talking to, to uh, Murph about, he's like, oh, with this dollar he's going to give me, I'll have $8 and Ten more, and I can go buy a colt. And I'm thinking, horse, so he can leave the town. No, but I was thinking gun. He meant pistol. Yeah, Colt forty five. Right, that's what I that's what I got out of that. See, I thought it, as he and as he spoke, you know, and they mentioned the uh, uh, Doc Holliday's gun. I was like, okay, he meant. He meant a, a gun, and he was and like, "Yeah, that makes sense," because he was just playing with the the chocolate gun that he got for Easter. 
<laughs> I like that. Hurry up sense. and shoot it before it melts. Yeah, right. <laughs> Draw. Oh, my gun melted. I got chocolate all <laughs> over my fancy gun belt. It's like, I'm surprised it didn't come in like a plastic case, you know, uh, with a cardboard back on it. and <laughs> just tears it open. Yeah, it had wrapped in foil. Yeah. Yeah, it was oh, just man. like... So this movie... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's, uh, it definitely makes him into like this poor, downtrodden, sad set. Like, it, but he seemed happy at the beginning. He's got like this smile on his face. It's like, dude, you're lugging barrels of shit. Like, how are you... <laughs> and like liquid shit, because it was just like right. dark brown, almost black, oh. just like brackish water. It's like, oh... <laughs> And like the smell oh, apparently so didn't disgusting. get to him. Like, right? Like, oh, it's a nice sunny day. I'm out for a walk. <laughs> you know that re- that whole scene reminded me of you. You remember the the cartoon, the newspaper cartoon, The Far Side? Yes. Okay, there was one panel where there's this dude, and it's it's obviously hell, and there's two demons standing in. There's this dude's got this wheelbarrow full of rocks, and he's walking around with it whistling, yep. and he looks all happy. And one demon leans to the other. He goes, I don't think this guy's getting the whole thing here. <laughs> yeah, it was something like, yeah, I don't think we're getting to this guy. It's some, yeah, I know exactly yeah. <laughs> what you're talking about. Like, there's yeah. flames everywhere. He's just, like, having a good time whistling, bringing his, yeah. uh, his wheelbarrow around. <laughs> right. It's like, uh so this movie was directed by Tonino Valeri, and it was his second film following Taste for Killing. He went on to film his third spaghetti western film, The Price of Power, which also featured Gemma in 69. And this guy had an interesting career. He started as an assistant director on Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars before moving on to directing himself. He also did an Italian horror film called The Long Hair of Death in 64, and the Italian crime thriller Go, Gorilla, Go in 75. And he's considered, even though he only made five spaghetti westerns, he's considered one of the the genre's master filmmakers because three of his five are considered classics, which would be this film, The Price of Power, and a movie called My Name is Nobody, which uh, I won't get into details here, but I think we're going to cover that relatively soon on the show for um, reasons, like I said, I'll I'll get into it on, on that episode. But... Yeah, so he's he's did a great job. I loved how this movie looked. I loved the the camera, the scene compositions. You know, there's one scene towards the end when um, the, the two main characters are going to face off, and Lee Van Cleef comes out of the building, and the camera just follows him out, follows him down the stairs into the courtyard, and it was just so nice and smooth. It was really awesome. Yeah, it was definitely uh, some good shots. Um really good cinematography um i did like the the town setting and we did get you know the one thing i look for in every western film you know a guy getting shot falling out of a window crashing through a a, a roof or a balcony <laughs> and like right that one the 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 sniper shot yeah when lee van cleef does like the roll and like pops up and shoots the guy and he like falls through. That I was, was like cool. wow that dude looked like he got wrecked. Like the stunt yeah. man looks like he like because that I ooh, like that whole thing just like fell apart and crashed and like everything collapsed on him. It's like oh, I don't know if that was supposed to happen. That is some shoddy workmanship right there. 
it just Lee Van Cleef's role was really awesome. I thought that that was cause that was him doing it too, not a stuntman, you know. Oh yeah, his his uh, like some of the the shot, like the uh, like the scene at the end where the guy gets the drop on. Uh, I almost called him Ringo again. The guy gets a drop on Scott, <laughs> and he's like, "Drop yeah. your gun!" And he like tosses it in the air and like twirls it around and like drops, catches it, turns and shoots the guy. Yes. And it's like, yes, okay. That was so cool. And again, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves in, in in action films is when they cut 30 times to show the, like, if this was made today, they would, you know, he'd throw the gun in the air and you'd see it twirl in slow motion. And then the <laughs> next thing you'd see is like his hand catching it and he'd be on the ground firing. But like, right. they had that wide shot where it was 100% clear that it was him tossing the gun, catching it as he rolled, and popped up and just shot the dude. It's like, that was an impressive scene. Like, yeah, I'm totally okay if that was like the 35th take. Right. <laughs> but like, that was great. And it was so, done so much better than you would see it done in anything. Because I've seen... Scenes like that. The the one that comes to mind is in the second, I think it was Resident Evil Apocalypse, the the second one. Okay. Where they're like, drop your gun. And she's like, okay. And she like lets the gun fall out of her hand. And then she waits a full second and then <laughs> drops to the ground, catches it, and shoots the two guys. It's like, first of all, that gun would have already hit the ground. Right. <laughs> and like... The amount of time you're waiting, like, you almost have to drop at the same time as the gun. Right. Yeah. But she, like, lets it drop. I mean, you know, people have seen, you know, you've seen things like that. And I've seen other things where, like, the guy just kind of, like, lets the gun dangle from his finger. And, like, like pulls the trigger with his pinky or something and, like, shoots the guy. (laughs) Um, It's like, all right, you know, that's kind of cool. Like, saw it coming. But this... Like, he takes the gun, like, I cannot stress this enough, and tosses it in the air, almost like, oh, you got me, like, he tosses it in frustration, and the thing's twirling, you know, end over end, and he drops, catches it as it's falling, and, like, rolls all in one motion and just shoots the guy. It was so cool. Like, it was, you know, as the theme of the film goes, like, you know, it's like, oh, everyone, you know. Talby's worried that you're, you know, you're replacing him. You're younger and faster, and you do everything better now. It's like almost like the one upping of that scene where Talby shot the sniper from earlier right. in the movie. And that was cool too. With that, the guy Owen, come, he's a stranger that comes to town. We don't know at that point what he's doing, and he just goes up to Lee Van Cleef, motions with his eyes. Lee Van Cleef looks over with his eyes, sees the sniper, and then, you know, takes him out. And that was just so awesome. That, like, they didn't have to talk at all to indicate what was going on. Yeah, and then, you know, you have the guy, he's like, oh, is he on our side? Is he, you know, is he with us or against us? It's like, he's a random gunfighter who showed up, like, with this long case. Clearly, he's got a rifle of some sort, you know, a right. special one <laughs> that he's really good with. Because why else would he have it in a case like that? And like right. some epic facial hair. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It made him look like a tiger, I thought. Yeah. And, like, it's like he just shows up out of nowhere, like, after you've already gunned down an entire gang. It's like, why do you think he's there? <laughs> like, <laughs> even I was, I was, even I, I was looking at this, like, again, this is the, what, fourth Western that I've seen. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's here. Yeah. He's here to kill this guy. Right. Like, but he's going to do it, you know, straight up and like they're going to they're going to have a, you know, a duel of some sort because like that's the code of the West. I'm like, there's like there's no question like Lee Van Cleef should have known better. <laughs> right, right. So let's get into the the cast and the um, some of the credits here too a little bit first. So you've got the writer was um, actually was co-written by Valeri, the director, and Ernesto Gestaldi, and it was loosely based on a novel called it's a German title called Der Tod ritt Deinstags, which means uh, Death Road on Tuesdays, by a guy named Ron Barker, and they basically said, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna base it on this book. And they only used a handful of scenes out of it. And the only reason they did that was so they could appease the West German co-producers and get their money to make the movie. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I, I have the same thing. It's like they just want, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll we'll use a little bit from this and we'll say that it's based on, it's, I mean, you could say based on, you know, like when they say like, oh, based on true events and like, you know, you set, you know. Like Titanic, oh, based on true events. It's like, yeah, the Titanic was a thing that happened, and you know it did sink. But like, right? <laughs> I think that's where the similarities end. Like I've watched movies like that where it's like, oh, these are based on actual events, and it's like, it's like, oh, yeah. well, it happened on a Tuesday, and Tuesday's a real day. You know? <laughs> He That's was when death by a shark riding a grizzly bear. Like, oh, right. <laughs> but it happened on a Tuesday, and Tuesday's a real day. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to talk briefly about the music, and I actually I'm going to jump out of this film for a quick second just to go back to Life Gamble because I totally forgot to bring it up. I guess it wasn't in my notes, but did you notice in that movie the music? It was um, a piece of music, and of course, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, it was a piece of music from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which was like the main piece they used throughout that film. See, it, uh, it sounded familiar to me, but there was almost um, like a John Williams Star Wars. Uh, yes. I got from yep, that. that too. Yeah, that especially at the scene where, uh, of course, we're in like way out of the Western movie now, but um, it reminded me of the music leading up to when Han Solo got frozen in carbonite. Yes. It was like dun 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 dun, dun, dun and I kept waiting for it to go dun 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, like you definitely maybe it's just because of, you know, that music has been used in 9 11 different movies and TV shows and video games that even like a slight variation of it you're like, "Oh yeah, this is Star Wars." I mean, right, Star Wars yeah. is a space western, like that's true, but and and that movie was was prior to Empire because Empire came out in eighty and that was seventy nine. Yeah. Um. But the song, the song they use from Holy Grail is called "The Promised Land" by a guy named Stanley Black, and that's on um Spotify.
let's get back into this movie, Day of Anger. Uh, the music was made composed by a guy named Riz Ortolani, and he's done a whole bunch of movie scores, mostly for Italian movies. One of the main ones that he did was for Ruggiero Deodato's House on the Edge of the Park. And then modern, uh, younger audience out there, you know, people listening to this now may recall that his music has been used on soundtracks for things like Grand Theft Auto, London, 1969, uh, both Kill Bill, Volume 1 and Volume 2, a movie called Drive from 2011, and Django Unchained in 2012. So Tarantino really liked Spaghetti Westerns, and he lifted a lot from them. So this guy's music was... You may have, you know, recognized some of it when you were thinking about Kill Bill. Yeah, it definitely, uh, I think with Tarantino, because he's such a devotee of classic films, you know, you're going to get a lot of these uh, homages and tributes to, uh, you know, the classic scores. Because, you know, as we've talked about on this show, and I've talked about, you know, a thousand times on other shows... The music really helps to enhance whatever's going on. You know, like exactly. you hear the Halloween theme or the Jaws theme. Like even if you haven't seen those movies, you hear that theme, you know, the Jaws theme, and you're like, okay, something bad is on its <laughs> way. Something bad is going to happen. You know, you have, yeah. say, like the Exorcist theme, and you listen to that, and it's just like you're like you're being... Uh, inexorably driven towards a confrontation. Like, that's just how you feel listening to that music. And right. it's, uh, you know, it's a huge part of any film. You know, and we've, like we've said, you know, it can enhance a bad film, you know, and make it watchable. Right. Yep. But it can also, like, the music that's out of place, like, you know, if you're being stalked by, like, this supernatural killer and, like, circus music is playing, like, <laughs> it kind of takes you out of the moment. Unless it's, like, you know, what they do with all these new things and they just play, like, whatever song, but they play it, like, you know, it's a choir of creepy British children, you know, and it's <laughs> played at, like, 75% speed. Right. You know, it's like, okay, you know, if that type of circus music is playing yes that's creepy i thought the groovy funky intro uh was was interesting uh, interesting way to set up the movie <laughs> yeah i definitely again i think that's what contributed to my you know uh initial impression of of scott it was just like you know you have this intro music and like this guy it's like oh he's I don't know, what is he doing? Like, you know, and the first guy that sees him, like, how are you doing, Scott? And he's like, oh, I'm doing fine. How are you? You know, like, oh, this is a guy who's right. well-liked and everyone, you know, everyone likes him. And, he, you know, he has a, a crappy job, but, you know, you know, this is, uh, you know, he, he's, <laughs> he likes it. And then, like, it's not that, and again, you know, this is what we're talking about. Like, it's literal. we were just talking about when it comes to music, setting the mood for something. It's like, that is not the case at all. Like, everybody hates this guy for right. something he can't control. Like, it's not his yeah. fault he's a bastard, you know, son of a yeah. prostitute. Like, that's not his fault. Um, yeah. Because now, now all I can think of is the... Uh, uh, 
the thing from Hamilton, bastard son of a whore. Like, that's all he... <laughs> but, like, that's not his fault. He can't control who his parents are. Um, right. But that actually wasn't what I was referring to. I meant prior to that with the credits at the beginning. Oh, okay. The groovy intro. <laughs> oh, yeah, the psychedelic thing where they just showed the same, yes. like, four scenes over and over again. Right, yes. Different colors. <laughs> it was very, um, uh, what's his name? The Andy Warhol. <laughs> the weirdest part, and, like, there were a lot of weird things in this, like, you know, they show, like, you know, a guy flipping the gun behind his back both ways, you know, and they showed it, like, yeah. 300 times, was, <laughs> it was Lee Van Cleef's face. Yeah. And you have, like, the the credit, and you're trying to read what the credit says, and the credit scrolls across one of his eyes, and it's being pursued by a man on horseback, and then it disappears, <laughs> and then it pops up in the other eye, and then... The guy on horseback goes by it, and then, like, they keep showing it, and it, the guy on horseback keeps shooting the credit, and it keeps disappearing or moving across the screen. It's like, right? what the hell is going on here? <laughs> it's so out of, you know what it is? It's the Willy Wonka boat ride of credits. Oh, there you go. It's <laughs> so out of place, and it's so trippy and psychedelic. You're just like, right. What am I what like? What is this like, <laughs> Professor Groovy Smile Time LSD Hour? Like, what are we watching here? <laughs> oh man, yeah, it was like a piece of Terry Gilliam animation. It was like, yeah, what is happening? <laughs> it's so bizarre and so weird, and it totally sets you up for like thinking this movie is going to be something it's not. Like the first ten minutes. Yeah. You know, counting the credits and like the opening are just like it's like, oh, okay, this is what this is. Nope, this is totally different. This is not right. <laughs> this is not what this was set up to be. What is happening? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just wanted to briefly touch on the cast here. Of course, as we mentioned, we've got Giuliano Gemma as Scott Mary and Lee Van Cleef as Frank Talby. We had uh Andrea Bosick as Abel Murray, he was in Danger Diabolic in 1966 with John Philip Law, who we saw in Death Rides a Horse. One of the characters, I think this was the blonde prostitute, Krista Linder. She played Gwen. Mm -hmm. I found an interesting credit of hers. She was in a Mexican wrestling movie. She starred with the Blue Demon in a film called Invasion of the Dead in 1973. So I don't think I've seen that one. I love Mexican wrestling movies. I'm going to have to check that one out if I can. Then we've got uh, a bunch of other actors that we haven't really seen before on this show, so we're not going to get into them. However, I didn't actually see it, and even when I watched it today, I kind of forgot to look for it. But apparently Paul Nashi, the famous, you know, the Lon Chaney of Spain, um, he has an uncredited role here. So, And I, I couldn't online, I couldn't find out. Every time it mentions that, it just says he's in the movie. It doesn't say what character he played or where in the movie he is. So it's probably like a Where's Waldo thing, you have to find him. In the film. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know what? I'm actually going to talk to Rod Barnett later on who does the Nashi cast, and I'll ask him about that if he knows, because he, he probably knows, you know. I mean, Paul Nashi had a small part in uh, what was the movie with Moses, The Ten Commandments. Oh, okay. He has a part in that. Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, so a lot of interesting things about this movie. I thought Gemma's dub the into English was interesting because it had an authentic Southern accent, and I thought the voice really fit him. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, you know, for as much uh, grief as we give the Shaw Brothers films about you know, dubbing with weird voices, um, yeah, I think this one was, was done really well. And you could tell that, you know, they were speaking in English for the most part. Like, this wasn't like, you know, Ringo or something, where they were clearly speaking Italian. Like right. Most of these actors were speaking English. Well, um, I wonder if they do that because Lee Van Cleef speaks English, you know, obviously he's, that's his native language, and he dubs his own voice. So maybe he's got to be able to hear, what, you know, understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're, if, you know, so, but that, you know, leads to, does everybody on set speak English, you know, to know what's going on? And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, European schools are much different from uh, American schools where, you know, European schools, because all the countries are so close and people are able to travel, you know, fairly quickly, you know, it would be like, like, oh, I'm taking a trip to New York, you know, for you or I. It's like, oh, I'm driving from, you know, Spain to France today, or, you know, I'm taking a road right. trip to Germany. <laughs> like, you know, you have to be able to speak different languages, so, you know, you have a pretty good basis. So, even though there's different, obviously different dialects, you know, if you speak Spanish or French, you know, you can go, if you're speaking French, you can go to, you know, Switzerland or Belgium or France and be able to get right. by because, yeah. again, you know, like just the same as you have, you know, English from Britain and English from, you know, Scotland and Ireland are not the same as English in, say, the South of America or right. New England. You know, it's all yeah. basically the same language. You know, tree is tree is tree, you know. Um, but, you know, different idioms and, and, and dialects and accents and stuff. But I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if these guys were, if not fluent, familiar with English, especially enough to, you know, act and get the dialect. Because, you know, the facial expressions match what they're what they're saying and, and how they're saying it. And, you know, the, yeah. the emotional uh, resonance of whatever the scene happens to be. So... I mean, I'm, 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 I like the fact that, you know, when they have the American actors and they're dubbing it in English, it's easier because sometimes, like we've talked about before, a bad dub, like in the, in the Life Gamble film, a bad dub can take you out of the film. It's like, I will go over to my friend's (laughs) house. (laughs) I have a feeling too that um, Lee Van Cleef. I th- he, what was he had? He was in Italy for like ten or fifteen years. He had to have picked up the language. I think. Oh yeah, because Italian's pretty easy to learn. So yeah, he definitely. Uh, I'm a hundred percent sure, you know. But he was able to uh, get by without without an accent. Right. Yeah. But again, he's not supposed to have an accent. Like they're supposed to be in Arizona. Right. That's <laughs> so, true. I mean. <laughs> I am not well versed in, you know, eighteen late eighteen sixties Arizona history, but I'm not overly uh I'm not overly sure that they had a large Italian population. Right. 
Mexican, yes, it's right on the border, and a lot of people were traveling back and forth, as we saw in the first Ringo film. Right. Yep. So I thought it was interesting, too, that uh, Scott's... What did he have there? Was it a mule or a donkey? Uh, He said mule. Okay. Which makes sense, because, I mean, it did have horse-like qualities for folks who aren't... Uh, aware of the difference, a mule is a half horse, half donkey. Right. So it's not can't quite make the pack mules. animal that a mule is, but you know it's also not quite the speed demon that a horse could be. You know, so it's right. yeah. kind of the best of both worlds. <laughs> it's a you know strong, durable animal that can also you know carry carry a larger load. Right. And I just thought it was interesting that he named it Sartana, which uh, that's a series of spaghetti westerns about a character named Sartana. But the first film, which is called If You Meet Sartana, Pray for Your Death, didn't actually come out till the following year, 1968. So I'm wondering, I haven't had a chance to really look into it, but I'll bet you Sartana is based on a series of books. And that's where he got the name from, because he clearly couldn't have gotten it from the movie, hadn't been produced yet, you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that makes the most sense. But now the, the fact that he had the mule and he was kind of rough with it leads into an um, interesting element where Talby basically tells him he doesn't like people to mistreat their animals. So, you know, we get an indication here that he's he's probably an okay guy. You know, this Talby guy. He, he, he likes animals. It, it kind of reminds me of there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a scene in Lethal Weapon 3 where, you know, they're, uh, Mel Gibson and Rene Russo's characters are uh, approached by a large Rottweiler. And her response oh, yeah. is, just shoot it. And he's like, oh, I can't shoot a dog. People, sure. But dogs, no. And I think that's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole basis for John Wick. Um, right. You know, it's okay to... You know these guys like oh I'll shoot I'll shoot this guy in the face in in cold blood but I'm not going to shoot you know a, a horse or a dog unless I have to like to put it out of its misery you know like old Yeller or, or a, a horse with a broken leg or something um, right yeah because there's it's almost like a like a moral code it's like yeah this guy will shoot you as you know as soon as look at you but you know the <laughs> animal didn't do anything to you and I think that might have something to do with the uh, rampant Christianity that, you know, even these gunfighters, you know, were, you know, ardent, uh, ardent, uh, religious guys, you know? Um, yeah. I don't think you have to be overly religious to know that, you know, the, the, you just have to not be evil to, ki- you know, an evil person kills a dog, but, you know, good guys, even if, they like you said, even if they kill other people for whatever reason, they're not going to kill an animal unless right, they're but, like, truly evil. You know, what I'm saying is even like the bad guy, the villain that, you know it's like, you know, he'll tie the, the, the girl to the train tracks, but you know he won't kick a dog. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, like that's his that's his uh that's his line. It's like ha ha, yeah. I'll get you, you know, because... It's like, oh, well, I didn't do anything. Yeah, but everyone's born with original sin. Twirl his mustache and run (laughs) off. 
Oh, that's too funny. I liked the whole teacher-student theme here in the movie. It was We kind of saw something similar to that in Death Rides a Horse. And um, I think uh, there's quite a few spaghetti westerns that sort of have the similar theme where you've got the, you know, the aging gunfighter who takes in the young guy and, you know, wants to train him. And see, that this here was part of the issue that I had with the movie the first time I watched it, which, like I said, I've changed my opinion on the film. But I walked into it thinking it was going to be Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma teaming up to fight bad guys. And That's what I did too. What we got was, yeah, and what we got was though, uh, you know, he took Giuliano or he took Scott in, we'll say, and uh, basically he was like a little kid. Like when he buys him the gun, Scott's face was just like a little kid going, "Oh my god, I can have this! I could get a belt too," you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was using him for and, his for his skills. Like you know, he's like, "Oh, well, these guys were mean to you, so let's get revenge on them." Also, I'm going to get $50,000. Like, you notice Scott wasn't involved in any of the monetary transactions aside from, ooh, look at your your fancy new duds and your new gun. And, well, I'll buy you this gun. You know, we'll get into the gun a little bit later. But everything he did served his purpose. And by him, I mean Talby. Everything that he did for... uh, for Scott, while keeping Scott happy and making him think like, "Oh, what a swell guy! He's you know he's so such a stand-up dude." Like everything he did was for his own benefit. Like you know, he was manipulating him from the start, and that's you know it's definitely uh, he's cocky enough to be like, "Oh, well, I'm going to teach you all these things." But I'm not going to teach you the most important things. You know, we get that from Murph later on in the film. You know, and even at the beginning, it's like it doesn't matter how fast you are, you need to know tricks because even like a fraction of a second is going to mean the difference between life and death. Yes, exactly. And you know, I think that's where the ninth and tenth lessons came in. Although for a right. guy who, you know, we see him at the end of the film like reciting everything that he has been taught. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it took him a little while to grasp number three, which is never get between a gun and its target, because we saw that right. in the first uh, encounter with uh, Wild Jack. Yep. It's like, ooh. Well, uh, he, was in, he was in the little bar there. Hey, folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found Podserve and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, Podserve makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. 
The promotion is free, and they put you on podparadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. Podsurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. So yeah, let, let's go over Towie's lessons here. He's you've got number one, you should never beg another man. Yep. Number two, you mustn't trust anyone. Yep. And as you said, number three, never get between a gun and its target. Uh, number four was interesting. Punches are like bullets. If you don't make the first one count, you just might be finished, which is all too true. Yep. Uh, number five was. Now, this one I really stuck out to me, and I'll tell you why. You wound a man, you better kill him, or sooner or later he's going to kill you. And that reminded me of the the book The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Yep. And in, in that book, I remember, because I read it a long time ago, but one of the things he says was, never leave an enemy alive, for only the living can seek revenge. Right. And, and that's... Well, it's definitely a theme we see in how many westerns, you know, like hang them high. Right. Like I don't. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know the thing is like, you know, somehow Eastwood gets out of being hanged and comes back and seeks revenge on everybody that wronged him. Like how many of how many movies have we seen where it's like, oh, you should have killed me when you had the chance, and like. <laughs> That's how the person dies is like the guy comes back for revenge or the, the, the lady comes back for revenge because of it's like, oh, you should have killed right. me when you when you when you had the opportunity, but you didn't. So now I'm going to kill you like <laughs> and the, the wise old mentor thing that you're talking about, like, yeah, that's like how many samurai films were like this, you know, which is where, you know, Westerns oh, yeah. were based. You know, it's like, oh, right. I'm this I'm this aging samurai, and there's this hotshot guy that's uh, coming for me. So I'm going to teach you know this kid, this young kid, you know, just about everything I know, and you know that one secret technique that no one else knows. You know, we saw that in Kill Bill, the five point palm exploding heart technique. You know, we saw right. <laughs> you know, we saw. Um, it's like, oh, well, I, you know, I have a feeling I'll train this person, but I have a feeling they'll come back and kill me in the end because, you know, I'm the only one that represents a challenge to them. So I'm going to teach right. them 99%, but I'm going to also have this secret apprentice on the side that I'm going to teach them everything. You know, and that's what we saw with uh, uh, Talby, where he's like, oh, yeah, here's all these things. I'm teaching you all these things. 
And then at the end, yeah. you know, Murph's like, yeah, but what about this and this and this? Did he tell you about <laughs> that? Oh, no. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason. So he still has the advantage <laughs> of you. Like, you're faster, you're younger, you're a better shot, you're more accurate, but you'll still lose right. because you don't know how to cheat. Right. Um, we see this in, uh, there's a great example of this, and it they don't really highlight it, uh, but if you pay attention, in Game of Thrones, you see there's a, a fight between Carl uh, Tanner and Jon Snow, and they're both incredibly skilled fighters, and Carl realizes that maybe on skill alone he can't beat Jon, so he spits in his eye. He's like, you were taught to fight with honor. You were taught, you know, in a castle by, a, you know, a master at arms. You know, you're taught to fight honorably. I learned to fight in the slums where <laughs> you use anything to your advantage. And he probably would have gotten killed except somebody, like, you know, intervened on their behalf. A few episodes later, we see him employ this exact same technique. Like, he's getting his ass kicked. <laughs> So he spits in the guy's eye and then caves in his skull with a hammer while he's distracted. <laughs> you know, so it's like, That's but they awesome. didn't like overly like, oh, you have to do this in order to win. Like, you know, like I've seen that in, there was a comic book crossover where Namor the Submariner fought Aquaman and, you know, they were, <laughs> they were, um, it was a Marvel DC crossover and the fight was to uh, immobilize your opponent. And uh, Aquaman uses his power to talk to sea life to have a whale jump out of the water and land on top of Namor, you know, pinning him down. <laughs> and he says, he goes, that's your weakness. You're too noble to cheat. Right. You know, so there's you know tons of examples of this. Yeah. You know, um, all over the place. Like even in the, 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 the movie we just watched uh, with a, a, a life gamble right. where, you know, the guy's got this sword and he's fighting with the sword, but it's like, aha, I blocked your sword. It's like, yeah, but there's another blade at the end. Click. Like now I've got you. Like, yeah. <laughs> so it's these, these little things that, um, you know, are sprinkled in like these little messages and it's stuff that's been over and over. Like even at the end of, the end of, uh, of this film, it's like, oh, if I had been waiting for you in the saloon, the sun wouldn't have been in your eyes when you walked out. Like, any advantage right. that you can use. That was awesome. Yeah. It didn't didn't really matter. No, it didn't, it didn't do anything. But just the fact that he was thinking calculated that way. That you was underestimate really cool. my squinting ability. <laughs> now, you mentioned the movie High, um, Hang Em High. And I'm going to put a pin in that, and we will come back to that in a later episode because that's one that you really should see. Well, let's continue on here, finish the list here. We've got number six, which didn't quite seem like a lesson to me, but it was right bullet at the right time. Number seven was if you untie a man, take his gun before you do. Meaning, you know, take his gun, then untie him, you know, because <laughs> yeah. he'll just pull it on you. Number eight was don't give a man any more bullets than, than what he's got use for. And that was Scott's rule. He came up with that. Yeah, because it, that took place right after the, the, the guys came and uh, Wild Bill's guys came and they dragged the shit out of Lee Van Cleef. Oh. Well, not Lee Van Cleef, but Lee Van Cleef's stunt double. Um, right. 
<laughs> it was brutal, though. And you could definitely tell that they uh, went through and removed all the rocks or any debris that might, like, seriously injure him. Because, like, when they, they rode around in the dirt around, like, that, I don't know, maybe at one point it was a fountain or, like, a watering yeah. hole, but it was full of hay now. Uh, and then right. when they ran up the hill, they took the horses up the hill, you could tell that there was, like, a very specific path carved out, like, this rectangular path that they had clearly oh, gone cool. over and made sure there were no rocks, and no cacti, no anything that could seriously And I think he was, he was on a mat. Oh, Did yeah. It looked like he, like he had some kind of a mat under him, sort of like Indiana Jones. Oh, no, absolutely. But, you know, just in case, like, they went through and they, you could tell because it was like this. It's almost like when you're, you know, your lawn is kind of, uh, kind of cut. And then you go through and yeah. you sort of, uh, go through it again. And, like, you see, like, the, the, the clear patterns that are cut. And, like, this was, like, this long rectangular path that was definitely wide enough for three horses to ride up and turn around and come back. So, like, they definitely made sure that they, uh, they didn't, (laughs) they didn't have, uh, (laughs) anything there that might injure the stuntman. And even, like, you know, afterwards, you see, like, how red and bloodshot Lee Van Cleef's eyes are, like. Oh, yeah. Like, just from. Like the initial, uh, you know, like filming of that scene, like just that got him all, uh, like all jacked up. Like, you know, his, his eyes were all messed up and everything. Um, yeah. And he, that was cool. It was, it was a very nice touch and Scott saved him. And, like, threw his gun to him, and he was able to shoot all three of the, the guys in the back. And, right. You know, that's Scott he's only like, put three bullets in it. <clears throat> right. He only gave him the three, and he told him. He's like, he's like, yeah, you know, just in case. He's like, ooh, you're learning. But, like, that, those are the last lessons that <laughs> he gave him. Unless I totally missed nine and ten. Yep, not, well, we've got number nine, where he said, uh, well, actually... Talby remembered that Scott came up with number eight, so I guess he really liked that one, or maybe it was something he was going to say. Um, but number nine was, there are times you have to accept a challenge or lose everything there is in life anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Scott learned the hard way, number 10. I think it was um, it was Talby who also said it. At the very end, one of the last lines of dialogue, he says, when you start killing, you can't stop it. Right. Okay. I and do remember that, that now. That was the hard lesson. Yeah. So I liked I liked Scott's character arc in this movie. I think in a lot of spaghetti westerns you don't get characters that have such a an amazing arc where he went from like you said this shit slumming uh peon who was just uh, you know and he also had this childish sort of attitude about things. And then he kind of became uh, you know confident gunslinger Almost arrogant. I thought he was a little arrogant at certain points, like a little cocky. And I wouldn't really, say little. Like his... I'd say, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, he uh, he absolutely like turned into the biggest jerk. Like you had, um, you had what's his name there? Um, the doctor that was after the the gunfight that they had. The doctor was like tending to the the guy who was shot like in the ribs, 
And yeah. Scott just grabbed him and like, no, you, you come work on my friend here first. And like, you know, he's talking shit to the judge and calling him a bastard. And then he's, he's, you know, go get the broom out of the, out of the back, you know, tells the, the, the bartender, the guy that owns the saloon, it's like, ah, yeah. You know, the same guy who's like, we don't want your kind here. If you're going to drink, you have to drink in the kitchen. Like, and he's just treated him like shit. He's like, all right, go get the broom. And he like takes the, the, the broom and like just shoots it to pieces, which was an impressive bit of shooting because we never really saw him shoot. You know, even in the gunfight, he was fairly reluctant to to do anything. That's true. Yeah. Um, so you don't know we, how we were accurate told that he, he was a good. Yeah, we. Like, were, I think we were told he was good, but we didn't see it till then. Right, because he. It's like you have a chocolate gun. Like what do you? Like, <laughs> and, you know, and and Murph tells him he's like, yeah, you're a fast draw, but it's like if you're a fast draw, but like you know, you're you're off, you know, four feet to the left every time. Like you're a terrible duelist. Right. <laughs> one thing I thought and this kind of for me at the first time I watched it was the turning point where I was a little I was saddened by Talby's actions here when he burns the bar and the the bartender or the co-owner I guess that really I was like wait a minute that was uncalled for and I was like oh no he's going down the dark path you know <laughs> I'm dissolving <laughs> our partnership I was like there was no need to kill him he didn't like he's like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, build my own saloon. It's like, why don't you just renovate this one? Like, it seems easier to just right. renovate this than burn it down and start over. I mean, like, I get the symbolism. Um, yeah, I will say <laughs> the pillars you, out front of the new one are, are giant guns. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say like that whole scene where he goes to the bank and he's like, oh, I want to make a, a withdrawal. It's like you don't have a an account here. I'm like, yeah, I got wild bills that are wild jacks. Wild Jack. I keep calling him wild yeah. bill. Uh, <laughs> a little more common Western name. Uh, right. <laughs> he goes, I'll, I, you know, I have his account. Give me, you know, I'll take a thousand dollars. And the banker's like, give me a thousand. And the dude just hands him money. Doesn't count. It. <laughs> He's like, here you go. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's like a thousand. Yeah. That's like, and then, like, at least Lee Van Cleef counted it. <laughs> right. Let me check. Yep. <laughs> then he goes to the uh, to the to the guy and makes him sign the thing. He's like, "Why did you just make me sign?" It's like, "Oh, a confession." It's like, "Why didn't you read it?" <laughs> it wasn't like <laughs> no kidding. Three hundred pages. It was like a single sheet of paper. But I will say, I made a note <laughs> when he turns and says, "You know, a full signed confession." He's reflected in the mirror, and that's such an awesome shot. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because he's almost at the door, and, like, he turns around, and you can only see him reflected in the mirror, and it's just so cool. I was like, oh, man. Yeah. This, you know, we talk about impressive cinematography and, like, really great shots that, you know, different directors uh, put into their films. You know, we... we you know, again, we talk about this a lot, especially with the Shaw Brothers films. But this is this right. was to me in a, a, a very well shot, very cinematic film. Um, this was probably my favorite shot 
of the film. Even the scene with the the gun twirling at the end that we uh, we already discussed. Uh, this was probably just right. the coolest shot because uh, it was so well done, and it's just like, oh, he's reflected in the me- oh, it just looks so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man! And so this the whole scene before he torches the bar, the bar, um, was uh, actually a couple scenes before that was where Talby and Owen have their uh, what do you call it uh, the um, duel? Yeah, on horseback with with musket rifles, no less. <laughs> and we that, see. Uh, actually, no. Go ahead, because I, I don't. You, you're probably going to touch on it. Yeah, well, I was just going to say how amazing it was that Talby, all he had to do was have the musket ball ready in his mouth. So it's just saved him that millisecond of time when they were both loading as they're racing that he gets his shot off like a millisecond before Owen does and is able to kill him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, this is exactly what Murph has been talking about the entire time, like knowing the tricks. So instead of like, using the 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 uh like the little thing to tamp down the the musket ball he spit it down the barrel yeah saving himself just a couple of seconds and those couple yeah. of seconds allowed him to win the duel i will that, say though, that was just amazing we saw him i was just thinking this looking at my notes we saw him get go to the doctor and get treated when he got shot in the arm, yep. not after he got dragged around. Like, <laughs> he true. was covered in blood. His hands yeah. were all jacked up. His chest was shredded. Like, yeah. he was just covered in blood. And he just acted like <sighs> nothing happened. And we never saw those, like, scars on his hands or anything. He was just like, yeah, I'm totally fine. Right. I healed on my way or back bandages to town. Or bandages. Yeah. He should have been bandaged all around his chest and oh, and his hands. Like I was like, oh, this—that's what's gonna yeah. come up later. Like something's gonna, like he's gonna be bandaged up and it's gonna somehow do something. There's a there's a scene where they're trying to get Scott, like all the remaining guys that are on uh, the shit list. There, they try to get Scott to go over to their side, and right. they lure him outside. You know, with women, you know, there's Scott thinking with his Colt 45 again, uh, goes outside and he gets shot. And then you see, uh, is it rule five? You know, if you wound a man, kill him. Um, right. Yeah. And guy's like, Oh, I'm the one that did it. I killed Scott Mary. And then Scott shoots him in the friggin' face. (laughs) Like premature. The rule number 11, premature celebration will get you killed every time. (laughs) <laughs> like that is a rule in movies premature celebration right. you know we've seen that in like you know armageddon and stuff like that where it's like yeah all right yeah. Or, or um <laughs> independence day where they they shoot the nuke at the at the the spaceship the first time and they're like yeah we got a direct hit all right and it's like oh it's still there it's like oh i shouldn't <laughs> right. have jumped up and cheered and said that we did it hooray um that's so funny and but then after that, the doctor says, oh, he won't be able to shoot again. Yeah, that's what I was going to touch on. Like, you have all these guys standing around, or sitting around the card table, 
And they're like, well, I heard he's paralyzed. Well, I heard the doc had to take a chunk of muscle out. I heard this. It's like, oh, he'll never be able to light a match from 10 paces. And, like, the guy holds up a match, and all of a sudden there's a gunshot. And, it, and like, not only yeah. is he not paralyzed, he's faster than he was before. It's like, wait, what? Like, he got shot right. yesterday, and now he's, like, way better yeah, he's like, well, I exercised. <laughs> oh, I pushed myself out of bed. It's like, why would you need to push yourself out of a out of bed with a sh- shot in the arm? You know, it's like right. one of those things we t- we talked about on other shows. It's like, oh, I've been shot in the arm. Now I have a limp. <laughs> like, why yeah. are you limping? <laughs> oh, he's got a cane. Why? Oh, because he he got a concussion. So he's he's got a he's got a cane now. Like guys, you know, got you know, bandages all over his head and he's like walking out with a cane. It's like, why are you limping? That's so funny. And, you know, I, I just thought it was interesting though. Like you mentioned with the, um, the town really, at, at first I felt like they were really playing Scott by trying to get him, you know, luring him with the girl and all that stuff. But then she kisses him, but then she does, she refuses his advances and says, only till you talk to my dad. And then, you know, Murph aligned himself with, because I don't think Murph was corrupt like the rest of the town, and you know which was which was worse: these corrupt officials that are oppressing everybody and you know treating everybody literally like shit, or Talby, who's kind of just saying, "Hey, let's party it up," you know? <laughs> well, I think Murph's thing is again another trope that we we've seen time and time and time again: the honorable wise mentor sacrifices himself but leaves the last bit of information that you know because he's he's lost his student for whatever reason like we saw this in karate kid three uh right he's lost his student because the allure or appeal of this new person is so great you know he's you're learning different things and you know you think you're getting what you want but it turns out that they've just been manipulating you the whole time and again karate kid 3 is just probably the perfect example um and the uh the wise mentor knows that the path he's on is going to lead to his death but right uh he feels it's necessary because he cares for the protagonist so much that it's a it's a sacrifice he's willing to make in order to save his protege or his you know his student or what have you because that's exactly what we see. Uh, think of Obi Wan Kenobi in uh, A New Hope. If you strike me down, I should become yeah. more powerful. And like he did everything he did so that Luke could uh, get away because he knew yep. that Luke was yep. the key. Um, you know, and the mentor comes back and shows that, you know, my way was the best way. And, you know, we get uh, a payoff. Like, I didn't think we were going to get this payoff, but it turns out that, you know, you know, they talked at the beginning about how fast and how great of a gunfighter Doc Holliday was. And when he died, everybody yeah. was trying to find his gun because, and, you know, I keep wanting to call him Ringo. 
uh, Scott's like, no, nah, no, it's, it's because he was so good. It's like, yeah, but he had these tricks. Like, you know, as you get older, you have to learn these tricks in order to survive. And, you know, he even implores him to be like, hey, like, look, look at your gun barrel. Like, look at your gun. Look at this. Look at that. Compare it to his. Do you know why it's like this? Because, you know, he does this technique and you do a different technique right. and his technique is faster so he can shoot six times in the time you can shoot three so he's twice as fast as you when it comes to firing like you might be able to outdraw him but it's going to take you longer like it's going to take that fraction of a second long because your your gun barrel is two inches longer so it takes longer right, for the bullet to come off out, the end you know? of his... and it's a slight fraction of a second but it's still a delay that he doesn't have right because talby sawed off the end of his gun to make it shorter so he could draw it quicker you can draw it quicker and far to go and yeah and so the the bullet also doesn't have farther to go although uh it also uh and i found this out going to a gun range that when you uh shorten the barrel of a gun decreases the power oh right we shot uh an ak-47 like we shot multiple guns but one of the guns we shot was an ak-47 and it had a shortened barrel and the reason it had a shortened barrel was uh because of its the 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 nature of that weapon it would have shot through the back wall had they not taken the the end of the barrel off so it was (laughs) adjusted but it was also a lot louder, and it didn't have as much power because the, uh, the, the there wasn't enough uh, buildup from the because when a, uh, the way it works is that the firing pin strikes the back of the shell, which drives the bullet forward. So, like you know, it, it sparks the gunpowder, right. which propels it down, and the longer it's in a barrel, the faster. The projectile is going to be so if you cut right. that off it also reduces accuracy so there's 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 an advantage but there's also a disadvantage but in this case you know it's not so much of a disadvantage that it's going to affect the out like the gun is still powerful enough to kill you know especially where he's able to draw quicker you know he doesn't have as much gun to take out of the barrel or as much gun to take out of the holster like you said because right. his the barrel was two inches shorter so that's a fraction of a second there and even if you draw at the same time and you both fire at the same time his bullet is going to come out first because he's got the shorter barrel it's going to be slightly less accurate but when you're you know like in the the scene in the bar at the beginning you know when you're five feet away doesn't matter Right. Doesn't right. matter. Like that accuracy, like if you're a hundred feet away, sure. But even the, the, the gunfight in the middle of the of the town, it didn't matter as much because they weren't that far away. Yeah. And wasn't Doc Holliday's gun there was something about it about they had modified the trigger so you pretty much had to look at the gun and it would fire? Yeah, it, the the hammer. Modified the hammer. Oh right, okay. Yeah, that was cool. And um I just loved that whole thing. I thought it was funny, too, how Murph, 
when he hears Frank Talby's name, he's like, oh, that rings a bell. And then Frank Talby hears Murph's name, he's like, oh, that rings a bell. And then like, oh, shit, it's that guy. <laughs> I mean, it should have rung a bell considering that, like, he defeated him in a gunfight. I mean, right. you kind of had that feeling that, like, they knew each other and that they uh, there was there was a history there. Yeah, yeah. That was... um. I thought it was kind of interesting, too, how, like you said, Murph showed him other tricks of the trade, but he also saw that that Talby was grooming him to take his place because Talby was an aging gunslinger, which, of course, in real life, there was only like a 13-year difference between uh, Gemma and Lee Van Cleef. But, and he was purposely, like, got him the gun, even though he showed him, you know, how to hang how to hang the holster on his hip, so that he can, you know, reach it quicker. Um, he gave him the gun. He bought him what looked like a nice shiny new gun. And then, you know, but it was still to kind of keep him down. Because, you know, Talby's gun was much faster, like, as we just described. So, but he was, so he, while he was grooming him, he was still kind of keeping him at bay. So he couldn't um, have a chance at, you know, confronting Talby eventually which Talby knew was inevitable right you know it's it's he's hedging his bets he's like i know that there's an opportunity or or, uh there's a chance that you know we might have a confrontation and i can't match your speed but because i can't match your speed i can always use these underhanded tricks right not underhanded, but you know, I can use these uh, different tactics in order to, uh, yeah. you know, gain any advantage I can. Right, exactly. I love Talby's line too, where he's talking to the, one of the townspeople, and he says, "He was born a wolf. You made him rabid, not me," <laughs> which was kind of true, <laughs> you know, because they. They pushed Scott so much at the beginning of the film that when he finally got his confidence and arrogance, he gave them shit for it. <laughs> as he <clears throat> as he earned. Like they they had treated him like he was probably what, twenty like the character's probably what, twenty five in this movie? You know? Yeah, probably about that, yeah. So his whole life, like that's how they've treated him. And Finally, yeah. he has the upper hand, and it's like, you're not going to push me around anymore. I only took it because I had no choice. Now I have a choice, right. and not only are you going to respect me, you know, but you're going to respect my friend here, which is why you respect me. So, like, you're afraid of him, and I've already proven that I'm, if not equal, on a level playing field. Yeah, exactly. I think he he was able to to sense the fear in them once they realized his change. I think that helped. It was sort of like a cyclical where it fueled him to be more confident and arrogant, and that made them even more scared. And then he got more arrogant and confident. You know what I mean? It was like it just kept building upon itself as he was changing as a character. Yeah, and it was all the. <clears throat> you know, the years of abuse and disrespect and, you know, all of that, you know, suddenly, you know, pulling a 180 and just being like, you know what? I have the upper hand now. 
and I'm going to use that to my advantage. Right. I'm going to treat you and make you feel as helpless and insignificant as you made me feel. Exactly. And I thought that was one of the things, too, that they were feeling was, oh, shit, we treated him like crap, and now he's powerful. What's he going to do to us? <laughs> you know. Right, and that's the thing is like, you know, oh, you want to apologize and respect me now because you're afraid of me. But when we were, you know, we were, you know, when you had the advantage, you know, it's like the old saying, like, you know, you can judge a man, you know, based on how he treats uh, those below him, you know, the station below them in life, as opposed to yeah. their superiors, you know, like, I forget who it was, I think it was Tom Hardy, and he's like, I show the same respect to the janitor that I do the CEO. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the things too about the theme here, well, no, not the theme, but when my vision walking into this movie or my expectation, um, in, in Death Rides a Horse, you know, the, the confrontation between Lee Van Cleef's character, Ryan, and, uh, John Philip Law's character, you kind of saw that from the beginning because Van Cleef's character was going on guilt and you knew he was part of the gang that killed, uh, you know, Law's family. So, but in this one, they didn't really have that kind of setup. We didn't really know what uh, Talby's motivations were. So, it took me, like I said, a second viewing to really wrap my brain around that. And then I, I got it. It clicked. And I, I, you know, I loved it after that. But it was just kind of an interesting dichotomy there where, you know, in that movie, his character, like I said, he, we already knew he was part of a bad gang and he was feeling the guilt about it. But this Lee Van Cleef character, um, doesn't quite have that. He's, it seems like he's got morals cause he doesn't like to see animals get hurt. And he seems like he's been a good guy. He helped this kid to, you know, stand up to his, the bullies and all that. But it was, he was really just motivated by greed, just the, the money and the power. And that I think just, you know, corrupted him. Absolutely. <laughs> no pun intended. I will, uh, I will say that for a significant portion of this film, especially the way they look at each other or the way Lee Van Cleef looks at him, uh, looks at Scott when they first meet, I was waiting yep. for the revelation that he's like, oh, I never knew my father. And like this stranger rolls into town. It's like, yep, there's your dad. Like, I, yeah. was, I was waiting for that. It's funny. I See, I didn't think of that, but I definitely could see the father-son relationship through the whole thing. Like, it would not have surprised me because he's like, oh, what was your mother's name? Mary. Mary, eh? I once knew yeah. Mary. <laughs> like, you know, and, but I was like, oh, it's generic enough that, you know, maybe, it, yeah. but like, it, it wouldn't have seemed out of place, but it definitely would have been cliche. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I just, I just loved it though. They had a really good dynamic here. And I, I'm going to have to look. I don't think one exists, but I still want to see a movie where Lee Van Cleef and Juliano Gemma team up and fight bad guys together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. But the whole ending was, you know, just a, a pyrrhic victory for Scott, even though he won and he, he got the moral high ground to, to basically overcome what he was becoming in, you know, by throwing his gun away at the end. It, everybody around him was dead. I don't think, with the exception of the blind pew or whatever his name was, the blind guy, everybody was dead. And I think it was a very pyrrhic victory for him. I think it was uh, definitely a bittersweet victory because he only came around to see exactly what Murph was talking about after Murph's death. 
Like Murph tried to warn him, and right. he was too stubborn because he liked his new lifestyle. Because when he was with Murph, he was this lowly shit wrangler, and now with with uh, uh, with Lee Van Cleef, he's this, you know, you know, hot. You know, he's got these fancy clothes and a fancy gun, and you know, he's not worried about scraping together eight do- eighteen dollars to get a to get a gun because he's got one and he's got a horse and. You know, oh, he's the the right hand of the the ruling class, and everyone respects it, slash fears him, and like does what he wants, and he can get away with whatever he wants, and yeah. So, all right, so Patsy, final thoughts on Day of Anger? Uh, I loved it. Uh, if you have Tubi, um, it's on there for free. Tubi does have commercials, which is why all the movies on there are free. It was a, a it's a nice restoration, but there are a couple of times where, you know, like for a second or two, and this might've been where I missed some of the stuff. Um, the film like kind of like speeds up, almost skips, you know, it gets a little jumbled for like a second or two and you're not sure what's hmm. going on. If you don't have Tubi, it's on fire stick, PlayStation, all that stuff free. And there's thousands of movies on there. Um, I was very excited that this was, that this was on there. Uh, I recommend watching it again. These are the first Westerns I've ever watched, you know, unless you count, you know, obviously the Magnificent Seven. Uh, but other than that, right. like I haven't really watched Western films, you know, not these types of Westerns, certainly not spaghetti Westerns. You know, I've watched movies set as Westerns, you know, uh, Bone Tomahawk and stuff like that. Back to the Future 3. Yeah, like <laughs> those types of films, like they're not, straight westerns they're parodies you know like the quick and the dead uh which is excellent sam raimi yeah um and that's a great movie phenomenal cast in that but yeah i uh i I recommend this very highly i like this one a lot uh it's a nice bounce back from uh return of ringo right (laughs) yeah i agree i am like i said it took me two passes to really come to appreciate this film and had to really sort of analyze it and, and do some research on it. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a classic. It's just so much fun seeing Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma together in a film. They're both great. And I'm looking forward to actually seeing more movies, more Westerns with them in it, not necessarily together, but um, I like Gemma. I, I'm glad that we discovered him. I mean, I had no idea he existed until we started doing the show and we, we did pistol for Ringo Lee Van Cleef, of course, I grew up watching him, so he was just always great. So, folks, yep, take Patsy's advice. Go and see it. Watch it on Tubi if you can. So, Patsy, why don't you let the folks at home know where they can find you online and all about your podcasts and stuff. Oh, well, you can find uh, one of the easiest things to do. Just go to throwdownthursdaypodcast.com. That has all of our uh, latest articles, latest episodes. Uh, you can go to Throwdown Thursday Podcast on YouTube. Uh, we have a couple of different playlists on there. We have our uh, Throwdown Thursday. I have some funny gaming moments. You know, some of these clips are only a couple of seconds long, and maybe they highlight a glitch or maybe they highlight something crazy that happened in the game. Uh, there's some clips from the game Maneater, where you play as a giant bull shark, and it's phenomenal, and I love it. Uh, there's also <laughs> a playlist uh, has a has a several episodes of The Loudest Sports Show, which I host uh, along with my two brothers. Occasionally, uh, 
my wife Ashes, who is uh, also my co-host on Throwdown Thursday. Uh, she's going to be coming back more often because hockey season is now upon us. And on that show, she is slashes the ice queen. She's our hockey expert. And uh, nice. also uh, our six-year-old niece, Emma Extreme, joins us to pick football games and uh, just do extreme stuff um, and, <laughs> and be six. Like, that's that's what she does. That's uh, cool. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, you can also find me on uh, the Dorkening Podcast Network on Indie Creator Spotlight. Uh, we just interviewed Michael Dorn last week. Nice. Uh, for his new movie, uh, Agent Revelation. And uh, yeah, and we have uh, coming up in the near future on Throwdown Thursday, we have our interview with John Reese Davies and his role wow. in uh, Grizzly 2 revenge so keep an, <laughs> keep an eye out for that excellent excellent you know and and patsy thanks so much for for sticking with me on this truck i think it's just great fun to explore these films that you know you and i pretty much both haven't seen and thank you dear listener for joining us once again on this journey into Shaw Brothers Movies and Spaghetti Westerns. You could send us your thoughts on today's episodes, uh, today's episode two, The East Meets the West 42 at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at havenpodcasts.com where you can also find our sister show, Then Is Now, where we discuss all the cool stuff that you may have missed out on and stuff you should know. Folks, don't forget to go wherever you download your podcasts. And if you liked this one, please leave us a great review so that more people can find the show. And the East Meets the West podcast is now on YouTube. Yes, that's right. So just go to youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One, and you'll find all our podcasts there, plus other fun stuff. And be sure to not only hit the subscribe button, but please share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. So that's all the time we have today. Join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. The East Meets the West is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. Jupiter Media.